Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newly reformed Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. Oh, I am excited to dig into this. I told myself that we were going to do some shorter intros here in the new year and watch this not happen. I have such an exciting guest today, and I don't know how we didn't get connected sooner, seeing as we are both butchers, we are both avid readers. And this guest took me on what has been ended up being one of, I think, three podcasts that I've recently recorded that is a deep dive into the history of why our food system is the way it is. And this actually wasn't a topic that I was intentionally seeking out. It's just something that sort of bubbled up into into my consciousness or into the consciousness of my guests and ended up being a really big point of conversation. And whenever that happens, especially with it happening over the course of three like back-to-back guests, where that's not what I thought we'd talk about, it's kind of fascinating that maybe this just needs to come through and maybe this needs to be heard. And our guest today, James Connolly, who is the producer of films, uh, you might be familiar with his film Sacred Cow. And he is so much more than that. Um, this man is a butcher. He is a, he ran an incredible nonprofit for a long time. He's a father and he's just, a really well-read guy. And when I say this, whew, you know, it's it doesn't happen too often that I come across somebody that makes me feel not very well read. <laughs> and uh James is is so well read that it was just very striking and I couldn't believe the amount of information that was in his brain. So with that being said, there is a resource list a mile long on the webpage for this, and there is a limited resource in the show notes. So if you're looking for the full list of books that get mentioned, that's on the episode webpage. And it's just so exciting. We dive into, and we're going to in this in this conversation uh, about history over the next couple of podcasts, we're really going to dive into... Hmm. Some controversial territory. And I know that's something that I don't like to shy away from. And I haven't shied away from on this podcast, though I always feel a little bit of a when I put it out there. And one of the things that we dive into in today's podcast that I want to give you a heads up on is we dive into the medicalization of human experience and talking about the deep history of psychological medications, um, something that I have a lot of personal experience with. 
And this conversation is not meant in any way, shape, or form to shame anybody who has used these medications in the past, who does use these medications in the present. This is not a place of shame, and it's not us judging your decisions. It is really just looking at the historical perspective of how these medications came about and exploring the scientific studies related to their efficacy. One of the things I like to tell people, however, is that the most effective treatment for you is the one that you believe in the most. And so don't let this shake anything that you don't want shaken up. But if you're ready for a little bit of a shakeup, it is here. And we really just get into it. And hopefully it has a flow. And if you stick with us, we do keep returning to topics and kind of wrapping this up with a bow. I think I could have talked to James for a very long time. So it's a longer podcast. And it is just a very fun podcast. And I cannot wait for you to dive in. If you haven't seen Sacred Cow, I'm sure most of you will be familiar with it. It's an incredible book by Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf. It's an incredible film. James is also known for A Taste of Sky, Bloodroot, Transmilitary, Mole Man, and is just an all-around pretty awesome dude. I think you're going to really enjoy his take on things. Okay, I want to do our first ad of the new year. And again, this is in reciprocity. I think that the beauty of ads is that the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast is brought to you by Home of Wool. One of the things I like to consider is the fabrics that are touching my body the most. And there is no time when I'm in contact with something as long as when I'm sleeping. That's why I trust Home of Wool with all of my all of my sleep-related needs. Home of Wool carries mattresses, pillows, crib mattresses, duvet covers, but also cushions and rugs that are all made from organically raised wool. Now, they are Ecotex and GOTS certified and have a wide range of ability to customize everything. In fact, my custom length and width body pillow just came from Home of Wool. It has a 100% wool covering, which means that it's mold and mildew resistant, that it is fully compatible with my body to the point that there are studies that show that sleeping on and with wool actually brings your heart rate down. These are the fabrics that we have evolved sleeping with in contact with animal fibers. And they are so amazing because they breathe when it's hot and they keep you warm when it's cold. And I am just so impressed with every piece I have brought home from Home of Wool. So if you are interested in getting one of the best sleeps of your life, the best night of sleep of your life, you can use my code Kate Kavanaugh. That's just my name, K-A-T-E-K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H for 10% off your order with Home of Wool. Just use my discount code Kate Kavanaugh for 10% off and dive into how wool can help you get the best and safest sleep for your family. 
The Mind, Body, and Soil podcast is also brought to you by Farm True Ghee. Farm True Ghee is my favorite cooking oil. And if you're starting the new year with a resolution to ditch seed oils, or if you're embarking on a whole 30 or an animal-based 30, ghee is one of my favorite resources. It's great for high heat cooking. It's packed with vitamins A, D, E, and K. And Farm True's ghee is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished, sourced from small family farms across the Northeast. It doesn't stop there, though. Farm True also carries an incredible line of Ayurvedic body products and many different concoctions made with their ghee. It is such a powerhouse. And I just, honestly, I just put the ghee on my face too. If you want to explore this, I have a 15% discount using the code KATECAV. It's the beginning of my name, K-A-T-E-K-A-V-15. That's KATECAV15 for 15% off your order from Farm True Ghee. I can't wait for you to experience the magic that is Farm True. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's um, just trying to get an overall sense of it, you know, as as you sort of pull back and you do a 30,000 foot viewpoint on things. And, you know, when, whenever I kind of talk about things, I feel like I lose people because they don't understand my point of view on the, on what I'm talking about. And so sometimes I'd like, I'll kind of want to start out with this idea that like maybe civilization was a huge mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And so (laughs) like if you're studying this stuff and we say, all right, well, like what happened to us? Why are we, one of the, the, the general absurdities that we have nowadays is that we're afraid of the sun. We're afraid of dirt. We're afraid of the water. We're afraid of, you know, too much sunlight. We're afraid of any number of different things that, um, and we're afraid of foods that we've eaten since for, you know, over 200,000 years since the dawn of time. And so like, if you look at the absurdities of that, you have to sort of pull yourself back and you have to say, all right, well, why are those people asking these questions? Why are they, why are they looking at it in this way? Why do we look at the world as a sort of, why is it when we look at this sort of future perfect idea, why is it always a sterile, clean environment that we're, we're sitting in a white kitchen with, you know, tablespoons and, and everything looks like a laboratory experiment and it's a clear antiseptic sort of bubble boy environment, uh, that is supposed to be this thing that we're, that is driving us into the future. And that, that is so abhorrent to me. Like every time I see that, you know, Frederick Lorai has this beautiful meme that he puts out, uh, and it's a, a bunch of Mongolian kids who are sitting around and they're eating meat and they've got blood all over their hands and all over their face and they're eating just raw meat. And then he has this sort of Kellogg's Rice Krispies girl, uh, sitting and having breakfast. And the, it, the whole environment is just like, you know, perfectly lit and clean and all of that stuff. And you see, you have to ask yourself, why is one important to us? Why do we have shame and, you know, disgust with the first one and how much of that stuff is sort of taught, you know, when I was teaching at schools, like when did that be, what is the genesis of that abhorrent shame filled feeling around it? Yeah. And, you know, some, some will say Upton Sinclair, um, you know, the jungle, they say that, that there was a a period of time when you had the sort of industrialization of everything sort of happening. And now you had these huge stockyards filled with, um, making sausage and, you know, this this Chicago, uh, is kill floors. And, he was, he was a socialist. He was actually talking about workers' rights. He wanted to 
get an understanding of how Chicago is playing out in terms of the people who are super wealthy and the, the immigrant population, mainly Eastern Europeans and Germans who are going there, who are literally dying, producing a lot of this food. And so he was looking at it from a very specific point of view. He said, like, you know, I'm trying to teach about sort of workers' rights and these guys were working six and a half days a week and killing themselves for food. And what he ended up doing was hitting us in the stomach and it created a, a whole sort of the new system of laws that were implemented that were centered around sterilization and cleanliness. I hit them in the stomach, which is what he said. And so that sort of was a sort of galvanizing property that, that became kind of part of the mythology that now exists nowadays that gave rise, I think, in a lot of ways to the processed food movement because the processed food movement came in and said, wait a second, we, what we can do is we can create the same product. We're going to produce it in a laboratory Right. And it's going to be, you know, uh, cotton seeds and, you know, all of this stuff. And when it comes out, we're going to be in white lab coats. There's no blood anymore or anything like that. And we're going to just give you this thing that is the product of the modern environment that doesn't have any of that stuff anymore. And for him, I think it was like, (laughs) I'm sure he was like, you know, totally like, you know, rolling over in his grave afterwards, just seeing the modern world that was sort of created off of that. Yeah. I have this question though. Why were we ripe for that idea when for hundreds and thousands of years of human evolution, we've been close to the dirt and we've been blood on our hands. There had to be something that was, there had to be some cultural impetus that was creating, you know, the right breeding ground for that idea to be like, okay, this is, I want this cleanliness. I want this sterility. I think that what Upton Sinclair did was he crested the wave. What ended up happening was the creation of that wave was the 19th century. So the 19th century, what you start to see, and you actually see this uh, for close to 200 years before that, you see this within the context of industrialization uh, that had in England and in certain places in the West, uh, what they called the sort of closing of the commons. There used to be all the, you used to have, sort of herding cultures used to have people very associated with farming. Farming was, you know, 90% of the workforce worked in farming. And when they tried to sort of push people into factories to start to make, you know, all of these factory products, the level to which nobody wanted this uh, was so high that they, in essence, they had to kind of close off the spaces by which these people could live and live by themselves. And so what you had was you had taxation that would happen that was, that would happen periodically during harvest or any number of different times during the year where you would get something associated with, with the imposition of rule of law from your hierarchical kings and queens and dukes and everything like that. Now you had to, in essence, sort of force people into these factory systems. Uh, And the way that they could do that was to outlaw hunting, to outlaw, you know, any sort of way of life and to say that these people are actually living the wrong way. And so you start to institute educational practices that say these people don't know anything, right? Obviously they're, they're living on their own and you can actually see this. um, You could see this in writing at the time. I forgot the writer who was talking about it. The book is called the invention of capitalism, but he was talking about the fact that he would go up into the Scottish Highlands and and these men would never work, right? They would just hang out all day. And when they got hungry, they would go and just shoot a rabbit and they would cook by the fire and they would just feed themselves 
themselves and they would just do all this stuff. And he said, this was laziness, right? These are people living, you know, according to their own means and, and communally. And he said, this is abhorrent to me. <laughs> and so you force them out of that way of life. You force them and you shuttle them into cities and into factories. And now you have to teach them how to live. And so you saw this primarily in the 19th century. You see this with the advent of sort of a lot of industrial, more industrialized farming than we had seen before. Uh, we see this invention of the cotton gin, but we also see this with a number of different implementation tools. But then you also saw people being forcibly shuttled into cities where they had to work. And so now they're divorced from how their food is made. And as soon as you can do that, then you start to be able to have a level of control over any aspect of their lives. And so like Daniel Quinn kind of talks about these. So they're really within all of the cultures of the world that we live in today, there's really only two. You can say there's just monumental differences between all of them. He said there are people who hoard and control food and there are people who don't, right? And so we've set up this divide in civilization and now we're all in essence sort of working to bring home the bacon in a way, right? Yeah. Fascinating. No, I I think pause for a second and we should introduce you, but I have to say this first because I think that something else happens at the end of the 1800s that changes the, the narrative, which is antibiotics. Penicillin is discovered and there is a different towards how we can cure illness, how we can cure something that, you know, feels dirty or feels unclean. And I mean, infection, infection is to some degree. And you see a rise of drug companies at that same time. And you see the Pure Food Act that um, preceded the Food and Drug Administration in the United States come online right around World War One. And I think that I think that that likely also fed into that narrative, but I'm fascinated because I do think that that divorce of humans from autonomy to feed themselves and to live in a way that feels closer to the natural state of what it is to be human, I, it, it does open, it opens the door for us to be mass educated and in a really particular way and to be just kind of detached from our own sense of meaning. And you do, you have, you have the perfect ripe situation for industrial processed food to step in. And once that is proven to be incredibly profitable, I think you kind of have a runaway train. Yeah. And, you know, there was during the time actually a huge pushback against that. The, uh, there's a book called the poison squad, uh, that goes into, Oh God, what is his name? It's, I think it's Harvey Wiley. Uh, he was one of the first food scientists. And so he, I, I don't know how he did it. He convinced a number of different people. I think it was like 12 men to go and sit down and eat a number of different foods that were considered sort of poisonous at the time. Yes. Yes. 12 healthy men. No, 12, 12 healthy very men. healthy men. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And, yeah. and to eat and, very poisonous things over yeah. the course of a year and to document yes. their yeah. complete degeneration. Yeah. And and for some of them, it was like cause mild gastrointestinal distress, which probably was not mild. No, no, I don't <laughs> you know, think it it's was. Very 19th century phrasing. But there was there was a lot of um, there was a lot of sort of play, it, especially when people removed from the farming system, then you start to get a lot of doctoring of foods. You would see this in 
uh, milk and flour. You saw this in a lot of different foods. So people were actually getting sick from foods. Coffee, there were any number of different things that were being doctored in order to produce, you know, just a, a cheaper commodity. And so you saw, in some ways, you saw uh, there was a case that happened. It was, I kind of want to go through the, the narrative of it. Uh, he was, uh, let's, let's see if I can kind of remember this. I, I read a lot. So there was this Frenchman who kind of came over who was a total scam artist, right? He was just going from scam to scam to scam to scam. He started, he was one of the first really sort of popularizers of margarine. He ended up being prosecuted in Chile for selling fake butter. And, uh, he ended up going to jail for it. And so you kind of look at it as like the pushback on this from Harvey Wiley, who was, who was, I think very much against a lot of these really adulterated foods or foods that were imitation. They used to actually have to call these food, uh, margarine imitation butter. And the industry fought really hard against it because nobody's going to sit there and, and buy imitation butter. And so they were they fought really hard against this. The, as soon as this stuff started to be enacted, uh, into, or the laws were starting to write about what is a pure food and drug, you saw the industry essentially just manipulating all of it. And so what you saw was a period in time that I think is actually a a crucial period where we could have had probably one of the most amazing food systems. Uh, this is prior to Ansel Keys, right? We could have had an amazing food system that actually looked at real food, tested it, used all of the new technology and chemistry to figure out whether people are selling real and fake stuff. And, you know, and the U S government just like, just made it completely banal and, you know, and destroyed the possibility of, uh, and opened the door for a lot of these fake foods. But this guy, um, and I'll, I'll send it to you for the show notes and stuff like that. It's a really interesting story because the 19th century did have certain degrees of adulteration, but what you started to see was, so now you have people fundamentally removed from their food system in many different ways. And they're starting to build these communities that were sort of like these vegetarian communities that were supposed to be an antidote because they were blaming meat for a lot of the, uh, the ills that were actually happening. You get somebody like Kellogg who, you know, in essence kind of created a, a food that he called, he, he wanted something that was already pre-digested. That's the reason why he actually made the food. So his invention for cornflakes was you crush it, you masticate it, you do all of that stuff, and then you you dry it so that when it enters into your mouth and goes onto your palate, essentially pre-digested. That was supposed to like help you with your digestive process because it, the notion was that your digestive system was so compromised that you couldn't digest foods anymore and it was all just being evacuated. So he creates this pre-digested food that then fundamentally kind of takes over the space <laughs> right? I hadn't thought um, about it. We can go into Kellogg. I know he's quite the character, but I hadn't yeah. considered the pre-digested aspect of things that there's an issue with our fundamentally with our digestion that we can, we can improve this because there's yes. what, because there's a waste product at the end of that. I mean, he's a, like, I think he actually fundamentally understood so many of the aspects of, of what we're talking about today. So when we talk about the probiotic and biotic movements and all this other stuff, he actually understood that the fiber and all of those things needed to be in essence sort of broken down. And he, you know, he presaged the, the Doritos movement, the, the hyper ultra processed movement by close to, you know, 70 years. So how do you make a food hyper palatable is you, in essence, you pre-digest it. Um, and 
so it has no texture, it has no mouthfeel, it dissolves in your mouth, your body doesn't recognize it as food, it never hits a satiation response. It, it was never his intention, but he did understand that there was certain elements in the digestion process that seemed to people when they were eating foods that they would have, you know, they would have gas, they would have any number of different, uh, you know, it, the man was obsessed with bowel movements. He recorded all of his daily bowel movements. He invented a machine for the, the colonic. He did not invent the colonic. He actually studied with a guy who uh, was a, a huge popularizer, but he created a machine that, that what was it, somewhere around 15 gallons of water per minute up your digestive tract? <laughs> so, <laughs> like 15 gallons a minute. <laughs> Wow. I don't even know where to put so, that. I don't even know if that's what my faucet does. Full blast, like a fire hose. <laughs> right. And, and you know, everything is about cleanliness, right? So again, we're going back to this idea of cleanliness. You can create, you can create a palleted diet that is clean, right? It doesn't have blood anymore. It doesn't have any of these things. These are like foods that look that you open a box, you know, inside of that box is, is a laboratory made food. All you can see footage from the 1920s of Kellogg's stuff. Uh, everybody's in white lab coats. Everybody looks like they're, they're scientists. And so you're creating this thing that says, listen, we are humans. We are divorced from nature. Uh, we've ascended to this, this medium now where we actually aren't really dependent upon it anymore. And cities are kind of the archetype of that because Cities are, you know, I think New York, by some estimates, has maybe three days worth of food if the whole system just shut down. Three days to feed, you know, eight, nine million people. And so it, you can live in this world where you get, say, the uh, presidential candidate, Michael Bloomberg, will say, oh, you know, he said, well, what happened in modern day society was that you had this enormous brain drain. All of the smart people moved out of the, the rural space you know, in agriculture and all of it, all the smart people left and they all moved to the cities. Did and he Bloomberg can say, say that. this? Yeah, he said this. Wow. Um, and so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and wow. seriously, fuck him, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and you have to be so divorced from the reality because his his daughter is is a, a championship um, horse rider. I think she at one point she was competing in the Olympics. Like he has to be able to go and see her on his multi million dollar you know farm and to see you know agriculture in and of itself and just see the inputs that are designed in order to create this you know multi million dollar horse that can jump over a fence or something like that. I don't know. What they Maybe, do. but I would argue. I mean, anybody who's driven through through horse property, like true horse breeding property, I would argue that it's quite divorced from agriculture, that those are annexes of honestly a a sterilized view of agriculture. Uh, The horse being, I have no idea how it made it to this point. It has a very inefficient digestive system and we've taken it and bred it to the standard and shaved it. So it's nice and sleek and tight. And so I would actually put that within the bounds of sterility in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And the same way they're the British bulldogs, right? Mm -hmm. Manicured little fences. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And manicured. Yeah. These breeds that are, they can barely breathe. They're just for our human pleasure. And I I have horses, so I'm I'm not, not knocking horses. I am as grazers knocking horses. I'm knocking them. They're bad (laughs) grazers. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> but that being said, I think that that's another hallmark of sterility. I don't think Bloomberg has experienced that. I don't think he sees it in the drive from his back seat. I don't think he looks up from his phone and has considered it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think when, when you're looking at these things from the financial perspective, right, that I know we're ranging from a bunch of different places, so we can, we can, we can jump back and forth between it. But when you look at the financial aspect of the, that I want to constantly go back to the divorce between the city and, and, and rural communities. Chicago is also the epicenter of the commodities sort of movement, right? So you have the agricultural exchange, uh, exchanges that were happening that really actually took off in, uh, during the civil war, uh, yeah, the stock market uh, in many different ways, right? Stock. Yeah, the stock. Right? Well, so no, stock. that was the, yeah. the genesis of the, the stock market. It was stock, yeah. livestock. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then you get the uh, the grain exchanges as well that were sort of part of that, that sort of gave rise to the modern day agricultural commodities movement uh, that is in essence sort of like a fundamentally reshaped our world. When you talk about corn and you talk about soybeans and you talk about like wheat or anything like that, what you need is a total sterile monoculture that is produced over and over again um, in order to create wealth for this financial system that trades these things as if they're, they're that there's no genuine inputs or anything that doesn't necessarily matter. By the time it reaches them, it's just poundage and price, you know? And so like for me that, my God, that took me like three years to go through the entire commodities exchange movement, you know, starting with the Phillips brothers and all of that stuff to even just get like a, a, some degree of global perspective on, on that. Cause that is a monster. And these guys have made, just enormous amounts of wealth off of one taxpayer dollars and two the backs of farmers. And they've used, utilized it in many different ways to, in essence, sort of destroy our agricultural system. And, and since 2008, what they were, what they were, what they actually felt kind of fine with, kind of uh, touching for a very long time was that they would leave farmers uh, at their fence, fence post. And so farmers at least had their, you know, the boundaries of their farm to be generally kind of left alone. But since 2008 and the mortgage-backed security crisis, they have now viewed this as the new sort of frontier. And they, they have leveraged enormous amounts of capital to, in essence, turn farmers into serfs again. You know, I mean, that's the way I describe it. But, you know, we can go into that as well. I think it's the only I, 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 honestly, honestly, my jaw's on the floor a little bit just because I, your wealth of knowledge and the, all the directions it's coming from that you spent three years diving into commodities, uh, alone yeah. is, is just kind of a, it's fascinating to begin to put together. And something that you said, I think, before we hit record was this worldview of how our food system has kind of tumbled. And I think that so frequently on these podcasts, we discuss it from a very, a very United States, North American perspective. And to get a bigger picture of how we got to where we are and, and what that means is, I think that's fascinating. And I think it's important, especially as we begin to look at, I think, a return to serfdom and farmers and, and a complete lack of land ownership. And I think that you see this happening, not just in the United States, but the world over, but just to put this into everything and to how we as culture have 
have formed our viewpoint of something because I think that viewpoint right now, that space that we're coming from, and you said this at the beginning of the interview that, you know, you wanted people to understand your viewpoint, where you're coming from. And I wonder if as a culture, do we understand our viewpoint because it's been so baked in from our education and from the culture we were raised in and from just everything about our lives, do we understand where we're coming from at this point in time? And so I think what you're doing is incredible and I I want you to keep going. But does that, does that make sense? Like, do we even know what our viewpoint is anymore? Like where we're coming from? Do we have enough context? Do we have enough historical knowledge? Do we have enough cultural knowledge to understand why we're making the choices and forming the opinions that we're forming? Yeah. And, you know, I think in some ways, like, um, God, there's so many different directions I want to go. <laughs> all right, let's, Me too. Let's, just, all right, let's, let's do the, I'll do the story of the great grain robbery. Because I think the Meat Mafia guys actually do a really good job of uh, distilling some of the aspects of what happened with Nixon and, you know, the uh, Earl Rusty Butts. And we've talked about that a lot on this podcast, too. So, okay. So the Great Grain Robbery is it? Have you guys talked about this at all? No. Okay. So, and it's an interesting story. I do not in any way say that I have a good understanding of it because the way the commodity world works is a a lot of them are private companies. Uh, They will sometimes kind of do like a prospectus and an internal perspective that people will be able to get their hands on. But for the most part, they sort of operate internationally and sort of within the bounds of some of the aspects of our financial system, but for the most part have figured out ways uh, to circumvent all of that. And so when you're talking about, you know, the uh, sort of A, B, C, and D, ADM, Bungie, uh, Cargill, and, and Dreyfus, some of the largest commodity exchanges in the world, you it sort of have to take a, a step back and go all the way back to kind of where the beginning of this kind of happens. And it's in the sort of 1960s. Russia had gone through... so. Um, I always love telling this story and I have to kind of stop myself. It's like, do you have three hours of your life? Um, so Russia, so Russia's agricultural program was based off of this weird guy by the name of Trofim Lyshenko, who caused probably one of the worst famines in all of human history. He may actually be responsible for more deaths in the 20th century, uh, than anybody else. Um, he funded fundamentally believed in an agricultural policy that was based on communism. And so he said something to the effect of, well, uh, plant species of the same species would never really fight for resources so that you can actually just grow wheat as far as the eye can see. And you would never have to put inputs because they're never going to fight for resources. He caused enormous damage. Stalin, uh, we know up until this point that, that perhaps maybe between four and six million people died in Ukraine because Stalin, in essence, took whatever harvests were left and whatever harvest bumper harvest they had before Lyshenko's uh, agricultural policy was put in place, was excised and exported so that Stalin could get enough money to build his own industrial revolution to compete with the West. And so when you get something like the Holodomor, which is, is talked about in Ukraine, is not talked about in Russia, you have this massive famine that happened. If you want to watch a film on it, there's a film that came out during COVID. It was called Mr. Jones. 
Jones. And it's about this intrepid reporter who actually snuck into the Ukraine and saw what was going on. It's really hard to watch. So Leshenko's policies, uh, I'm, I'm actually really good. So Leshenko's policies were exported to China and we don't know how many people died somewhere between 30, maybe 40 million people died. And they're, they're so sort of give it an impression of this. The Leshenko was, had fallen out of favor by the sixties and Stalin had died. There's a really interesting story about it. If you want to really dive into it, you can kind of look into it because uh, you have the agricultural minister uh, beforehand. His name was Vavilov, who's actually a total hero of mine. This guy traveled all over the world and he created one of the first seed banks. And he like just created this. If Russia had sort of followed his policies, I think, and none of this stuff actually would have happened. Uh, but Lyshenko uh, ended up kind of taking over, and he sent Vavilov uh, to a prison camp, and he died of starvation. And so you see, uh, so by the 60s, Russia needs reserves of grain. And this is the height of the Cold War, right? So you have all of these different sort of Cold War policies where, where you know, we have nuclear arms proliferation. We're fighting this thing. And we go and these, these Russian diplomats come over to the United States and they're like, Hey, we want to buy some grain. <laughs> and so, uh, these commodities brokers all get together. The, the Phillips brothers, I think were the ones who were initially involved in it. They end up selling the grain to Russia and Russia, these di- diplomats bought from a number of different commodities, uh, dealers and, what the commodities brokers knew was that it would send the price of, of grains and bread and su- supermarket staples uh, through the roof. And so we exported enormous amounts of grain to Russia. So then what happens is uh, the Phillips brothers actually end up getting kind of caught up in this. They're sent in front of Congress and they say, oh, well, actually, I mean, it really wasn't our fault. We ended up losing money on the deal because these Russian guys were so good at, you know, buying all of this stuff at bulk. But lo and behold, what they had set up was a commodities brokerage in Switzerland where they had voted uh, or hedge their their bets against the prices and they made a ton of money and so they started to realize they could leverage all of this different um these different sort of the swiss model of economics you know the way that they allow for taxation and you know any number of different if you want to study the swiss economic models it's an absolute mess but what they could do so they so they started to build this sort of commodities movement and they they in essence forced uh the u.s government through nixon and through butts who was told to control these prices uh forced all of these farmers to get bigger get out and what happened when they got bigger get out was that you get you get a huge takeover uh and you, you start to get this sort of manipulation of the farming market towards more industrialization and more monoculture which just creates more and more profits for these commodities brokers and then they start to get into anything that that could be sold at bulk, you know, so from gasoline, uh, orange to, juice, you know, pork bellies, copper, milk. cobalt, everything, sure. you know, all okay. of lithium, every single thing that, you know, and they created their own sort of market for this world where they sort of, uh, they have gone into almost every other place, every place on the planet and been able to leverage their power in order to just make enormous amounts of money. It doesn't matter if they're communists. It doesn't matter if they're 
you know, apartheid South Africa. It does nothing matters to them other than making money. So to the point where in Tunisia, when the Arab spring happened, uh, part of that, and they'll deny it to this day, they were able to manipulate commodity prices for wheat so much that when the government's over there, most people couldn't afford to eat anymore. And so you have the Arab rising that happened in the Middle East because they're so heavily dependent on on Russian, Ukrainian, and U.S. wheat that when the prices rose, wheat in essence got revolutions. And they, they always they're always able to wipe their hands of it. They're just looking at numbers, you know, or you know any number of different things. So. You get that sort of total manipulation of the system that bankrupts farms, that that bankrupts entire economies, uh, and these guys just sit back and you know just make you know tens tens and tens of you know hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, unbelievable um, amounts of money. Yeah, and you know Cargill has um, I think fourteen billionaires in their family alone, and there's still a very like secretive industry that, you know, the U S government has absolutely no impetus to go after them or to see what's going on there. And, you know, Glencore is one of the biggest, they, they are constantly paying out fines for any number of different things or, you know, they have been involved in genocides. They've been involved in the killing of in numerous indigenous groups all over the world. They're always just one or two steps away. They pollute entire environments. And what they'll do is they'll make billions of dollars and then have to pay a fine of like maybe $187 million and they get away with all of it. Yeah. So in order to understand the sort of Nixon girl, rusty butts, I think you have to understand what happened to the commodities market. So what ended up happening is the U S taxpayer and the farmers in essence built, you know, they, they really did like operate at scale at, you know, to feed enormous parts of the world, but under the yoke of these guys who were just going to make enormous money, amounts of money off of it. And the more that the bankruptcy started to happen, the more the, the financialization of that system, you start to get in 2008, you start to get all of these guys starting to move into farmland all over the world. And so what we're seeing now since 2008 is the financialization of, of farms all over the world. And if they're, they're willing to go into South Sudan, but they're also willing to go into Iowa, uh, Kentucky, you know, any, any place they can get their hands on. And what happens in to farmers is that you can't compete for the price per acreage that these guys can, right. And they, they can take over your farm. If you fall into arrears, they can, they'll lend it to you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's turning us into, I mean, it, it's turning farmers into renters. It's not dissimilar from having firms like BlackRock buy up all of the housing and cities and, and yeah. creating creating generations of renters. We're turning farmers into renters. I wanna kind of I wanna kinda go through this and kind of connect all the dots because we kind of started with this idea of sterilization and this desire, this human desire born from a couple of different things at the time to have this sort of sterile white lab, white kitchen, you know, opens a, a plastic container full of, I mean, it's cornflakes, maybe it's something else that is really coming from this divorce from the country, this, this moving people into cities forcibly. And then we have the, you know, Wiley and the Pure Food Act that was much needed and his poison squad. And then this, this opportunity a hundred years ago to build a really incredible food system that was 
kind of missed leading us through. And I, there's a lot of connecting pieces here into this great grain robbery, which I was not familiar with. And that was fascinating. That kind of takes us dovetails into Earl butts and get big or get out. And into 2008 where all of a sudden we're buying up all of this farmland and, and commoditizing it. I mean, the financialization of farms is what you said. And hmm. So we're a hundred years from where we could have had a really fantastic food system out thereabouts. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so we're about a we're about a century into this mess. A lot has yeah. happened, and you know some of what you're you know explaining is the the sort of globalization of food as well. Right. The, the of how this has has gotten so far from our backyards, and not just of food, but I mean you mentioned precious metals too, uh, things like cobalt that is in all of our electric electronics and and everything and this outsourcing of of all of these things we need for modern life and so i just i just want to put us there in that space because i think that this is important for building that that world viewpoint but also for building that where are we operating from how do we form all of these opinions yeah and it, i do think it's very difficult like uh, i think we if we can say that the, the hundred years ago that happened is so similar, almost a mirror image to what is happening today. What we have is more technology. I can talk to you back then. Maybe you had the telephone. The radio was the premier technology. So now I can sort of, my, my mind can fill the space of an Iowa farmer or somebody in, you know, in England. And so you have this whole new technology that governments were leveraging in order to sort of create like a, um, a, a, a sense of a community within people who are generally kind of left alone. Right. And then you start to see the scramble for Africa was in 1870, all the way up into the early part of the 20th century. Most of that was for resources. We see that happening today in Africa as well, especially the Congo. And then, you, you know, we, we say it, it's to decarbonize our, you know, our entire system. You know, I don't even want to get into that. Um, but there's, we, we create a crisis. Uh, the crisis creates, um, you know, Germany, Hitler talked a lot about Lebensraum, uh, which is a term that means in essence, sort of like a place for Germany for farming. And so you talk about this idea of, you know, the sort of control of, uh, the narrative around a crisis. And then you create a crisis that, that becomes the overarching thing that everybody is really focused on. And now we have every excuse to do whatever we want because it's a crisis. And so I, what I think we've seen in many different ways is the tech industry has been able to manipulate us in so many different ways in order to get us to sort of like, um, to control the narrative around that, um, to, to, to make sure that the normal consumer is so fucking confused like is hit on a 24 hour news cycle, 365 days of the year with like the newest thing, you know, whatever the new crisis is. And we're able to leverage a lot of this stuff because we, we say we're doing an inherent good. So you get somebody like, I don't know if you know anything about King Leopold, King Leopold, in essence, he was the King of Belgium, but he was a single, he was a single individual who owned the Congo. Like Belgium didn't even own it. He bought it. And he, his whole idea was to create civilization for Africa. And so he sold it as kind of a nonprofit. Right. Um, and so, <laughs> right? Um, and so he goes, right. And, 
To this day, again, we'll never know how many people died between four and six million people. There was enormous amounts of terrorism involved in it. It was to excise all of the resources out of the Congo that could possibly be done at the time. And for him, it was rubber. He was obsessed with rubber. Uh, it was a machinery tool and just absolutely important. Unilever uh, was another company, uh, Lord Leverhulme. We all know them. But he, like uh, England, wouldn't give him the space in order to operate his palm oil factories. So he went to the King of Belgium, and the King of Belgium gave him all of that stuff. So in order to, again, to go back to cleanliness, in order to wipe the asses of English people <laughs> and keep them clean, because he made soap, right? He, in essence, created the genocide in the Congo. But these were all like, you know, what he did, the narrative at the time always is to civilize people, to bring commerce and Christianity and uh, civilization to to the peoples of the world. And we see this over and over again. It's playing out in the beginning of the 21st century as well. You know, we see uh, the way that we have marketed the idea of, you know, Elon Musk says we, we will conquer whoever we want in order to decrease decarbonize this. So I, like, I want to kind of take a, like a, a little bit of a 30,000 foot view on this, because I think it's kind of an interesting aspect of some of the aspects of this is they, they have a viewpoint, they have an idea, right? This idea is, it's sort of a race against time. The way that I try to construct it in my head, we're driving towards this cliff, right? Does civilization make it? Are we going to be able to put the brakes on all of the biodiversity loss? Are, are we going to create this unique society where you get, you know, this perfectly designed Tesla that's just so beautiful. So you create this thing and you create this idea that what you are building is a civilizational structure that will expand our consciousness uh, to the universe. So Jack Dorsey, uh, the CEO of Twitter, when he gave up his company to Elon Musk, that's what he said. Uh, that was just one of his last tweets was, you know, giving this to Elon to expand our consciousness to the universe. And so they have this idea of, of this sort of civilizational plan where they can take their little, you know, penis rockets and shoot them out into space. You know? And like these billionaires are building this whole thing. We are, we're not even part of this conversation. You know, do we want to build a, a society that like, that, has, you know, like had provides ecosystem function that like builds diversity, that has soil that you can grow, that builds fertility, that tries not to escape death. Cause these guys are obsessed with this, right? They're obsessed with living 150 years because we have to have them around for another 150 years. Right. And so what they build is, <laughs> so what we built is this, this, it's a, a religious cult. The, the way I, I tried to describe it is they built a religious cult that says, Actually, we don't matter anymore because when you look at the mathematics of it, our individual lives do not matter as much as the trillions of people who live in the future. And so when you look at the math, your, your life is worthless. All you are is some sort of pod to get them to that space. And so they built into this thing, this, this term called long termism, which is sort of centered around this idea of like, um, and it, while you'll see Elon Musk say, we need more children, uh, we need to build more populations and all of this other stuff. So they built this entire framework of this world that is driving us to this civilizational structure that they don't know what it looks like. Maybe it involves AI. Maybe we digitize ourselves. And then we have like you and I, who I think agrees, like that, that's, it just sounds like the worst thing you're trapped in this matrix forever, Yes, you know, and you technology is 
No. Yeah. Everything is sterile and technology is the answer to everything. It, it, yes. It's just uh, technology has an answer. We'll just form an answer with technology and we'll just become continually more divorced from anything that gave birth to the human organism. Yeah. Like when, when I used to teach in schools, we were working with like kindergarten, fourth grade right? The thing that I did for the most part over the course of that time was get these kids familiar with growing things to get their hands in the dirt. And it was like every single time we're like, all right, we're going to go grow something. And they'd be like, all right, take out the Purell. (laughs) They would Purell these kids every single time. I'm like, please stop. Please just leave the the dirt dirt on dirty. Yeah. That's honestly what they need. But they're dirt deficient. They are not Purell deficient. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and like, I don't know. So I, I know we're going to many different tangents and I, I don't, I don't want to lose the audience in many different ways. Um, because I, I like, in some ways I'd need to have these conversations every once in a while, because I feel like, you know, they're important to have with people who are, who are like, you know, like say, say Brett is like going into this because he's, he's had this like unique experience of, of a health journey, but now he's like trans like these, um, I, I, sorry, I listened to the podcast recently, but he's like, he's, he's using this as to build a worldview that is like fundamentally nourishing people and the planet. So I want to talk to those guys who like these, these, you know, people in their, in their twenties who are being told, like, listen, the, the future is so nebulous. Like you're going to train for jobs at a college that probably won't exist in four years you know, like you're going to do all of these things. Like I have kids, my son just went to college, but you're, you're training for these things that, that probably won't exist, that the world is moving so quickly that it doesn't even matter anymore what you're studying, what your major is or anything like that. And I'm like, wait a second, there are a whole generation of kids who don't like school, don't want to sit in the classroom, don't want to sit in a fucking cubicle, right? Like crunching numbers all day. Like let's give them a a path forward so they can say, all right, well, I want to be outside. You know, I want to grow things. I want to like, you know, let's talk to them, you know, fuck the rest of them. They were just like, you know, building their worldview where they're like stuck in the matrix and they upload their consciousness. I'm like, God, that sounds awful. It sounds horrible. It sounds like my worst nightmare, but it's really important to understand how we got to that viewpoint. And I'm really grateful to the way that you just unpacked, you know, the small pieces of it. I mean, we could spend days unpacking how we got to that, but helping to understand that there is this drive towards civilization big quotes on civilization and sterility and this idea of a deathless space and how much tunnel vision that's given us in a lot of ways. I feel like we're, we're in a tunnel. We're only looking at those things and we're being offered as solutions, ever growing bits of technology. Well, you know, if this is an issue, then we'll just insert this technology here. And it will, if this comes, you know, if the sun is too much, then we'll just blanket the sun with something. Uh, if there's too much carbon, we'll just put these crystals in the, in the dirt that absorb carbon. And, and they're very singular. They're very cold. They're very singular. They don't consider what a holistic system is. They're very based, you know, on sort of statistical analyses that can't consider the complexity of an ecosystem, much less the complexities of the humans that are a part of that ecosystem. 
Yeah. And you know, one of my favorite writers is a guy by the name of Trevanian. He wrote a book in like 1979. It's called Shibumi. And one of the things he kind of makes a point in this is it's, so this is the dawn of the computer age. And, you know, he said that something to the effect of we, we thought the world would end in chaos, but what we're finding is that it's actually going to end in like a total object objectification of the world, like a statistical analysis of everything that we're going to, you know, like take everything and just take it down to these fundamental parts, break it apart. Right. And I just find it so important. Like, um, I remember Paige Stanley, who is, um, uh, sort of an advocate of regenerative agriculture. She's a scientist. She works primarily in studying a lot of carbon, you know, methane in cows and any number of things. She's overall, she's, she's a great person, but she, you know, she talks about the fundamental difficulty of like studying regenerative agriculture because it's ecosystem dependent, right? If, if you are in the Southwest and you're a rancher, you have completely different, you know, problems and opportunities and, you know, than somebody in, in the Northeast or in Mexico or in Guatemala or anything like that. Every single one of them is going to be different. You cannot just measure methane and say, all right, well, the, the easiest thing to do is just in essence, like just get rid of it, you know, Oh, it's deforestation for, for cattle production. Well, what about cocaine production? There's a ton of deforestation for cocaine production, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's plant-based, it's plant-based, you know, <laughs> but same thing. It's the second leading cause of deforestation is palm oil, right? And most of that is going into processed foods, right? So when you take out the nutrient quality of foods and don't even factor that in, then you can say palm oil is is not is not in anywhere near cattle production and we can go into all of the details of that it's it's so it's so hard to kind of get into every aspect of it but it does seem to be the talking point that kind of comes up more often than not deforestation but like yeah go ahead i was gonna say because one of the things that you said in a previous interview that that really struck me is here we're talking about this sort of tunnel vision around civilization and these sterile environments and technology. Then we have this tunnel vision of, you know, what this catastrophe is, this, this looming catastrophe. And it's really centered down on, on meat and on carbon and on all of these different things that I think the majority of us are familiar with. But you brought up something that I thought was really interesting and we're not seeking the environmental footprint of say the defense industry or the pharmaceutical industry, right. Or the, the cocaine industry, right. Like incredibly hard to measure. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to me that we've just really chosen to focus the majority of our ten- attention, not all of our attention, but the majority of our attention here, when there are all of these other industries that require a lot of, a lot of inputs to get where they're going and are pulling resources predominantly from, from spaces like the Congo and spaces that are not, not in our backyards, right? There's a whole, and just how that tunnel vision has kind of happened. But we can also, we can also unpack deforestation and, and palm oil. But I think that it's really interesting to bring that up because there are all of these different industries that have inputs that aren't really being looked at or considered much. Yeah. And it really does come down to what you're measuring. 
So, and you can see the breaking point for that, right? I don't think anybody would ever talk about methane or, or acreage for production or anything like that until Cowspiracy. And so you had this enormously popular documentary come out by two grown idiots. You know, <laughs> I'm going to get in my trusty old blue, blue bell and drive around and I'm, I'm going to type in some stuff on a computer and discover the truth. I mean, real, like ethical vegans just live in an ethical vegan life. It's like none of that stuff was ever true. They're, they're not seekers. They have a very specific point of view. They are financed and paid off for by, by people who donate most of their time to mercy for animals. You know, uh, Jim Greenbaum, uh, you'll find on uh as a producer on most most vegan documentaries he made somewhere around 300 million dollars in the telecom industry and he's devoted his entire life to ending animal agriculture and so you'll find him on the imdb producer credits for almost every vegan documentary that comes out so these guys are heavily dependent upon one thing they're sort of semi-religious institution that is focused on one thing and one thing alone and so they're they're there's wonderful podcast if you ever get a chance so it's called climate one and it's a debate um between nicolette nyman and one of the one of the producers oh my god it's so much fun to listen to but go all the way through it and get to the end to the q a and there are people standing in the audience who were interviewed for cowspiracy who were like you directly manipulated one, why you were there, and which is allowable, I think, within documentaries. Maybe you can lie, you know, as to your intentions, but also you manipulated what I said in order to make it sound like I was saying something completely different. And so, you know, for, for us in Sacred Cow, we actually released all of our interviews. You know, you can listen to them. Uh, you can go on the website. You can listen to the totality of it. You can listen to the point of view. And look, it was our point of view. We went to find people who, you know, were going to dive into different issues in a very different way from what you were getting from a lot of these other documentaries. But we did release them so that, like, you can actually delve into it. You want to find out what this person said before and after that conversation? Here, here you go. And we're doing it again with Death in the Garden. We're releasing everything as a podcast. If we're interviewing somebody for this film, you can listen to the totality of it. And we do have a very specific point of view. We want to build a landscape for the future that looks very different from this tech industry sort of, you know. Um, Techno-utopia. So, yeah, you know. And so I think for us it's like uh, it always is an interesting conversation. Cattle are a, a strange phenomenon because they've been placeholders ever since and you know all the way back to medieval times you know it was a form of currency livestock have always been a form of currency uh in many different ways and so it, it becomes sort of something that you can kind of beat up on uh because you can you can look at what people eat and you can make a value judgment over that and it is one of the weirder parts of most sort of religious institutions is that they do have times and periods when you're supposed to not eat times and periods when you're not supposed to eat meat times and periods when you're supposed to sort of cleanse your soul and cleanse your body by not allowing death to enter into your body. And so you see this sort of pseudo religious institutionalized sort of aspect to the world that kind of happens within the vegan community that seeks a higher form of enlightenment that says, listen, we are, we have transcended death on this planet because now we only eat the sort of plant-based materials, you know? And so all we're trying to do is sort of bring balance to the equation. Like all we're, you know, like you, you have a choice as an adult, you have a choice over what you can eat. Uh, you should make an informed choice, 
you know, nutrients and protein and any number of different things, you should make an informed choice. But when they started to get into um, school food and they started to push for vegan Fridays in New York City and started to push for meatless Mondays um, and all of that stuff, I said, that is it. You know, and you can see there's, there is a direct link between my advocacy to the point where they started to institute this in places that I had been working for close to a decade. So I'd been working in inner city schools, working primarily with kids from, uh, we were pre-kindergarten to fifth grade. This was, this is the point where you can introduce them to novel foods, uh, and you can teach them where their food is coming from. And we, it was all in-house classes and, you know, fun stuff. And the kids were breaking down vegetables and trying new things and any number of different things. We were working with 1500 kids a week. We were teaching 18 schools. We were working with them over the course of two years. We worked with, um, uh, Michelle Obama's let's move program. I shat all over that. I think it was a mess. It was just a giveaway to the processed food industry, asking them to like, just please stop advertising to children. They were like, no. And you were like, okay, <laughs> like no political pressure at all. <laughs> no, there was not, there was zero, <laughs> zero political pressure, uh, for these guys to do anything. And, and all they have done is double down on it. Right. They, they want your children so badly. They want to create consumers for life. Yes. You know, they want to do the same thing. The cigarette industry did was if you start smoking Marlboro, when you're 16 years old, you are Marlboro customer for life, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, any number of these different institutions work this way. And so like when I was working with these schools and I started to move up that ladder and start to move with like the larger institutions, none of these people cared, right? So education doesn't care about food. And they, they consider the two, like just to be completely polar opposite things. And I'm like, I can't, like, I don't know how to sit down with you long enough to make you see how important food is to that child, to that child's ability to pay attention to that child's ability to, to function Everything. Uh, yes. in a space where they're, they're denied sunlight, they're denied physical education, mm-hmm. they're denied a, a place in society because they're holed yes. up for 18 years of their life in a freaking cubicle. And so they're completely removed from all the aspect of, of, say an an adult society. And then they'll question. So Brett was saying this, he was like, you go to college and you go hog wild. Why do you go hog wild? Because you've never had any ounce of freedom up until that point. Never had any autonomy. Yeah. And what, what schools are doing now is even worse. Like you, like when I was in school, I was a shitty student. It was totally terrible, but at least I had the ability to draw and like spend time in my own mind and look out the window and see stuff. Now, if you fall behind in one test, you get an email. Your parents are on you. The school is on you. It's a total surveillance state. These well, kids are not allowed to. They're yeah, starting to track attention too. They're starting yeah. like in China, they're starting to actually track that. attention. And so it then notifies the teacher that this student has stopped paying attention so that they can be re-engaged by whatever method. I'm not sure what that is. Yeah. I mean, we shame really, it's gotta be shame, right? You call them out in front of class. You say you're not paying attention. Yeah. And I, I 
think in many ways that this this method of education is an experiment. I mean, this is not this is not the place that children have held in society for many years. And there's a lot that can be learned outside. And I think I heard you say this on another podcast. Like you don't need to teach the days of the week and the seasons. They just they <laughs> they happen and you learn about how they happen. You don't need like you don't need a laminated card that says fall yeah. with a red leaf. Yeah. Um, it's going to come around once a year and and become a part of your understanding of the world. Yeah. And and if you do want to dive into it, I, I think it's incumbent upon adults uh, more than children to read about the history of compulsory education. And one of the harder parts, I think, for a lot of adults is to realize that you've been through a program that actually really didn't educate you. And you should spend your time actually taking apart that thing because you have now, you've been in essence shuttled into something for a very long time. You were told you're only good at this. And, you know, it's totally absurd. Like the, the human experience of learning does not involve 45 minutes of being a poet and 45 minutes of being a mathematician, right? It, it involves having it a question about, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. It seemed absurd to me when I was going through it. I'm like, I'm yeah, a poet I mean... now? <laughs> you know? Um, and so you have to understand that like, when this was, when this was being built, it was built for a very specific purpose. It was during the industrial revolution. And they said, well, what we want to do, and this is almost a direct quote from, um, from Woodrow Wilson. We want to create a, a class of people, uh, that learn a liberal education that grow up learning dialectic and understanding and, you know, however the human experience of learning is. And that class will rule over the other class, which is, which will learn in essence, like just how to be, you know, a product, uh, you know, a, a consumer, right? Sorry, I butchered that quote. We'll find it later. Um, but there, there is, we created two classes of people and those that, that sort of aspect of our world actually govern compulsory education. And the, the primary finances of this were, were, were the billionaire class of the time, uh, the Carnegie's, the Rockefeller's and stuff like that. When they tell you exactly what they're doing, then believe them. Right. And so, yeah. And so it's a very different educational system from what you see in a lot of, uh, sort of the elite schools, the elite schools are, um, they will have, They'll, they'll have the way that John Taylor Gatto, who actually did uh, some of the, the primary research on a lot of this stuff, he was a New York City teacher of the year, New York State teacher of the year, and he quit. He said, I can no longer abuse these children in the way that you're telling me to. But he, the kids absolutely loved him. And he wrote a number of different books, but one is sort of an underground history of, of, of education in the United States. And it's, it's just a, a really interesting sort of like, he, he kind of goes through any number of different steps that were involved in the creation of the educational system that we have. And they knew at the time that they were going to create the, um, he talks about something called the uh, B-STEP. It's called the Behavioral Sciences Teacher Education Program that came out in the late 60s. And this was the sort of dawn of the pharmaceutical age where we were starting to get a lot of, you know, uh, antidepressants and antipsychotics and, you know, uh, therapeutics and stuff like that to kind of like dull and narcotize people. And they realized that what they were creating was a model of education that was actually destroying 
children. And so they actually advocated for the introduction of a lot of these medications to children. And so they knew as far back as the late 60s that they were creating this the level of tension and violence that we that we were seeing in the 60s and 70s in schools. And so when I was teaching, we were teaching in some of the poorest congressional districts in the United States. A lot of the kids were in foster care. We worked with kids who were on the autistic spectrum. We went into some of the hardest hit schools in the inner city and were primarily working with them to overhaul school food. But what we found was so many of those kids were just so over narcotized. There were so many medications to get them through the day. And you could see this, you know, like it was just so hard to watch. And, you know, the pharmaceutical agencies have been able to, to, to just completely change our worldview on, on what we consider to be childhood, right? Like what is a child? Yeah. We're kind of on this educational track. (laughs) Do we want to kind of go and unpack the, the pharmaceutical and the medicalization of the human experience? Do we kind of want to begin to unpack that? Yeah. But I feel like I'm talking too much. Why don't you tell me like your, your sense of it? Because it, like, I'm, I'm so in it and I'm so passionate about it, but like, I want to hear somebody else's point of view on it. Even like personal in terms of in terms of education specifically, or in education, terms of, all of this? Uh, in terms of your understanding of like the way we've medicalized uh, normal human impulses, grief, uh, sadness, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think this is all part and parcel, and I think that's what's the what is most interesting about this conversation. And you have you have brought in a lot of things that I wasn't aware of. I don't want to say this, but it's not often that I got I get caught a little unaware and like, oh, I have I have more reading to do. And this, <laughs> this conversation has caught me in that space as a consummate reader. I think that something really interesting begins to happen when you unpack the food system. And that is that it it seems to be a doorway for ways in which and and this is to say maybe you feel lied to or the ways in which you've been manipulated or the ways in which we as society have been sort of institutionalized within a paradigm. And once you kind of start peeling that back and you're like, oh, saturated fat doesn't do this. And then there's this whole Ansel Keys thing and there's all these different pieces, then it kind of gives you this set of glasses that you can put on and look through them and be like, oh, what else in my world might be like that? And all of a sudden you begin to sort of look at, you know, say school systems and the way that school systems have been brought up over the last 100 or so years, or you put them on and you look at them, the medicalization of the human experience. And you start to see these threads that are, that are woven together and that they're fraying and falling apart, right? Like you look at it and you're like, oh, it's just a beautiful braid. Everything is rosy. You put the glasses on. You're like, oh, this, this, this entire (laughs) thing is like fraying and falling, rosy, falling apart. And I think that some of this is informed by personal experience and the lens that we look back on it on. And I think for many of us as students, maybe that, that, (laughs) failed to fit into the mold of, of the way that we educate have always had a little bit of a rebellious perspective on school systems. And I'm certainly one of them, but I think unpacking the medicalization of the human experience, because I think in many ways it is 
parallel to what we've been talking about in that here, here on this techno utopian side, we have a space where there's a technological pill to cure everything without ever looking at the root cause. We don't ever, we don't need to know (laughs) really. We'll just, we'll just give it a little technological pill. You know, if it's cows, we won't look for the root cause. We'll just slap a beyond burger on it. We won't unpack everything that that beyond burger is doing. And I think that it's the same with the human experience and what this conversation has been is leading into the ways in which we've been misled and, you know, to a degree manipulated and herded into these little boxes. And I certainly, you know, and we talked about this a little bit on a backstory, had this experience where by the age of 15, I had probably been on 11 or 12 different pharmaceutical drugs in order to shift my human experience because, I mean, and there were a number of factors here, but I think when we begin to unpack the mental health history, and I think we should do that. I I did a very deep dive into this prior to this interview, but I had this experience where all of a sudden there's a little kid who was experiencing a lot of trauma at home who deeply did not fit in at school and was just lost on how to socialize with other children was, you know, at times in early years, nonverbal in school had this experience where all of a sudden I was being put on medication after medication, trying to get me to fit into this mold, trying to take what was viewed as the edges off of this little kid and to, without looking at my environment or the ways in which life might not have been very comfortable for me. And some of the things that I was expressing were a part of that deep discomfort of what was happening at home and the fact that school was no safer than home was. And I think that we're seeing this across the board. And I think I was amongst that first generation, you know, I'm this is, this is happening, you know, around the mid nineties to the late nineties for me, the first generation, maybe not. I mean, you're talking about this really happening in the sixties, but I was one of the only kids I knew that was on all of these different antidepressants, antipsychotics, none of which were working and given all of these labels for my mental health. And so for this interview um, and as something I've been doing on the side anyway, is unpacking this entire history of how we pathologize what it is to be human. And I think it's so fascinating that we have these labels that we fit on the human experience. And we can talk about some of why that is. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in, you know, I'll tell you a, a personal story that deeply affected me to, Let's see where to sort of begin on this. Um, this this is two thousand one, and my family situation. My my mother and father should not have been together. Let's just say that. <laughs> I'm a, completely yeah. different people. Um, <laughs> similar similar upbringing. As as they grew up together, they grew apart from each other. And my father was incredibly abusive, just verbally uh, abusive. Um, but you know, my mom had been with him for, you know, close to 35 years. Uh, and in 2001, I came home and, uh, I found her in the bathroom and she was incoherent and not making sense. She just went to go throw up and she wanted to go lay back down again. And I went and I said, no, 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 we're going to go to the hospital. And 
So I took her to the hospital and they couldn't figure out what was going on with her. I went to her bedroom that night and I discovered a suicide note. And I totally understood where she was coming from on it. I I totally understood that she felt trapped in this marriage and it completely just no way out of it. And, you know, I, I blame myself for not telling her to fucking go, you know, and she wanted to go back afterwards. And we just, as a family, we just wouldn't allow it. And so this is, this is about, I think it's about two months after I, I met my future wife. And so we had just met each other and she, I was like, I think we we're going to break up because it's just like, I'm just dealing with like, all of this stuff right now. And she was like, fuck this. Like I'm staying with you, you know, and we're just going to figure this out. And so she helped me through all of this. It was the worst moment in my entire life. Helping my mom recover real, like helping her understand that she was a victim of abuse was so hard. And so we're, we're going into, I was supposed to go to Florence to study art and I would gotten accepted to this elite program. And on September 11th, my future wife's uh, company worked in World Trade Center One. And through just a number of different events, she just wasn't there that day. They had a meeting that was canceled the day before because they had let two people go. And so she would have been there that day. And on September 11th, I moved in with her. And, you know, like we just went through all of it. Like Cannabis Fitzgerald was one of the companies that was worst hit. It was on the top of the World Trade Center. Most of the people were already there. They lost like 700, over 750 people that day. Uh, we went through all of the trauma of that. So a global trauma and then individual healing. And I, I went to the doctor and I was like, just dealing with all of this stuff. Like, you're, you know, New York City was burning and she's like, you, I think you have depression. I'm like, you know, so she goes, Here, I'm not no, like, no, it's a totally absurd. No shit. <laughs> and she's like, here, take a pill. Like you, you, you must have like a, you know, like a, <laughs> like let's just ignore the environment. Ignore yes. everything that just happened to me. You know, you must have a chemical imbalance. And for the next two years, I'm on this pill. And the thing that got me off of it, the thing that actually got me off of it was I was sitting down with my son. We're married. My son was six months old and he smiled for the first time. And I felt nothing. I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel sad. I felt nothing. And I was like, I got to stop. Like this stuff is just awful. It takes away every edge of life, you know? And so for me, like the journey was like, all right, well wean myself off of this. <laughs> maybe it was environment. Maybe it was things that happened in my life, you know? And uh, like, in some ways I understand, like, first of all, she wasn't a psychiatrist. She was uh, just a, my local doctor. She, like she shouldn't have been prescribing. Yeah. She shouldn't have been yeah. prescribing anything. And so I started to look into it and I'll, I'll kind of tell a story that's a, it's an interesting story. So and this again, happened in the seventies, like whatever the fuck was going on in the seventies, like I Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. This, um, this really starts in the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> right. I have. And yeah. Of and course. so this, this is the heyday. This is sort of the heyday of psychiatry because they, up until this point, they are gods among men. Right. So they are like, if you want to watch, um, there's a, a documentary about these, uh, three triplets who were separated at birth by the psychologist who wanted to study the differences between one raised in a, a wealthy family and middle-class family and a poor family. And so they separated these three kids, um, wow. and just 
went in every couple of months and like checked off how the children were doing and any number of different things. Like the level to which psychology dominated our worldview all the way through the twenties into the sixties and seventies was so strong. So you get this, um, you get this professor, it's called the thud experiment. And so he goes and he takes, um, I forgot what it was like maybe eight or nine students. And he takes them to all these institutions all over the United States. They travel there and they go in and they say, I'm starting to hear voices. They all say exactly the same thing. Otherwise they're completely normal, but they say, I'm starting to hear this voice. And this voice in my head says one word, thud. And that's it. And every single institution goes, plus the professor, every single institution goes and admits them, uh, diagnoses them and admits them, starts to give them like narcotizing drugs and any number of different things. Uh, and just based on that, the thud experiment, they just said the word thud. Right. So then, the, then, you know, like they, they all tell their family, they'll be back in a couple of days. They're, they're there for weeks right? The professor is there for weeks. He's like, listen, I, this was an experiment and I just wanted to find out like how easy it was to get diagnosed. And they're like, ha ha ha, you can't fool us. You've been diagnosed. Yeah. And so that yeah. we can't be fooled. And so he can't get out. Right. And so he, the only way that they're able to find, uh, to get out is to admit that they're insane and then to start to get better so that the psychologists believe that they're curing them. And so eventually they get out and it becomes a huge scandal in the, um, the psychology community. Right. So one hospital says, so this one hospital goes to them and is like, they're like, Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe that happened once, but like now we're, now we're primed. There's no way you're going to be able to fool us. And he's and they're like, send some more people and they'll never, you know, like whatever. Uh, and so he's like, yeah, all right. So I sent a bunch of students. And so they go, well, all right. So we discovered it. We released 41 people that were all your students. And now, you know, we discovered who they were. And he was like, I didn't actually send anybody. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so this is a huge crisis within the community. So not only can they not diagnose, but from hospital to hospital, they're also getting diagnosed in different ways. So there's no standardized level of care and they want to be treated like physics and chemistry. They want to be treated like a science. And they are saying for the last 30 years that they are a science. And this guy devised an entire program and just completely wipes them. And so they decide to come up with a DSM. The DSM is the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, for Mental Illness. And it's just any number of different maladies. Like we, we've all grown up with them, uh, a compa- uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, agoraphobia, any number of different things. There were, I think, somewhere between 12 and 14, all men, all like top of their field who sat down in a room and just like spitballed malady yep. after malady and just threw it out into the world. Based on what they were experiencing and what they were studying or excited about within their practices. Yeah. And so they would say, oh, well, you know, say like something like constantly chewing a pencil or something like that. And one of the psychologists would be like, wait a second, I do that. That can't be in there. (laughs) So like, it's just a free, free for all, right? Yes. And they released the DSM and the DSM in essence sort of creates the modern culture of our world. 
it becomes part of modern Hollywood culture, uh, sitcoms, everybody's self-diagnosing. In essence, they create a world where it, it actually becomes kind of funny because now you have people going into psychologist's office and saying, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. Can you diagnose me? And so what I wanna- you... Yeah, Can I add go to ahead. this just a little bit? Yeah, because I think it. that I think that how they create the world is really important. And so you have these diagnoses that have been based on these checklists. They're not based on they're not based on on objective data. I mean it's it's purely subjective what people are experiencing. There's no way to really look at this and I have quotes from several people that were on the DSM-3 task force when things really start to change in the 70s that basically say that they were just making stuff up. But I think this is really important is that marketing comes into this, that they're trying to figure out how to market drugs. And this really happened in the, the Thorazine situation in the sixties that, that Thorazine comes online. They look for a Thorazine light and all of these different sedative drugs that allow people to function, but take, take these edges off of society come out. And the DSM allows them not to market a drug. And Arthur Sackler gets involved in this, who was a a big physician that, that became a part of this marketing engine for the drug industry. But they start marketing these diagnoses, not the drug. So we're not marketing, say, Prozac. We're marketing, well, are you experiencing, you know, low energy and bouts of sadness and all of these different things? Oh, we have a solution for that. And I think that this is really novel because what you're doing is you're inviting people into this space to say, oh, well, I have that. You're not marketing how you're not marketing Prozac. You're marketing depression as part of this lexicon. And then you're saying, oh, we have a quote unquote cure for what you have. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that. And and again, I, I want to like reiterate, it is the medicalization of normal human experiences. What I was experiencing was deep, deep grief. And, but that, that can't ha- happen. And so the DSM used to have for depression, it used to have a, a clause for, for grief and bereavement, you know, bereavement, right. They call um, it the bereavement exception. Yeah. And I think originally it started out for, it was about a year. Right. Uh, so if you had a traumatic event in your hap- happened in your life, the chemical imbalance theory started to kind of take over and there was a sort of a war between the two. Can an experience happen in your life that, that would cause, you know, depression for a long period of time? Or do you actually have a chemical imbalance? It was a war between the two. Eventually kind of sort of got whittled down to about two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so, like yes. if, right? If your family member passes away, you got two weeks to two get weeks. over that shit. Two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> two weeks. And then in this latest version of the DSM, right. it's like the DSM five TR. I don't know what it is. Uh, they took it away. Yeah, they took it away because they couldn't reconcile the problem with the two. So if you feel and look, you know, if you're if you're involved in health awareness, you know how important sleep is. There is something called the Hamilton scale that looks at any number of different, I think it's like 51 things on there that you sort of fill out that are supposed to be sort of associated with depression. And one of them, lack of sleep, if you actually can work out that sleep problem, the points that will go up is somewhere around six. 
you know, you can fundamentally change by proper eating, exercise, any number of different things actually do better on the Hamilton scale than SSRIs. And so there was Irving Kirsch uh, in the 90s. I don't know if you've heard about him. He, so he's, he's, he's a really funny, interesting guy. So he goes, uh, he's working with one of his students is working on the idea of the placebo effect, right? Uh, he's really, really interested in the placebo effect. And so Kirsch actually starts to work with him. I want to say his name is Sonnenheim, you know, but they, they, they start working together and they're trying to sort of figure out like with SSRIs, what is the percentage of gain on this scale that happens over a period of time? And they're looking at all these meta-analyses and that are produced by the pharmaceutical industries talking about the effectiveness of, of SSRIs. And so he puts out the meta-analysis. They, they check these numbers. They're like, these numbers can't be right. They check them, they recheck them, and then finally they punish them, and publish them. And they come out and they're like, my God, this stuff is barely effective over placebo, right? And so you have multiple things that are happening at this time. One, depression doesn't last forever. So even if you're, um, for you know, unless you're, you know, the lead, lead singer of The Cure, because that guy says he's been depressed for 30 years. Um, <laughs> I don't think he's sleeping. <laughs> and it's he's all vegan. the deforestation um, <laughs> that's happening of the cocaine, I think. Right. So he's, um, so you, you're going to get better over time anyway. So if you're taking the medication or taking a placebo, um, you're probably the overall period of time that, that you're going to start to feel a little bit better. The distinction, the differences between the SSRIs are so small. It's almost, it's just, it's unintelligible. And so, uh, so he published this cause a huge for, uh, furor and everybody kind of comes out and, and the, the blowback from it was like, well, they said, well, actually, you didn't study all of the studies that weren't published. He's like, what do you mean? There's studies that weren't published? He said, yeah, the pharmaceutical industries don't publish the studies that, that don't really show anything. And so he, he goes Freedom of Information Act. He gets those studies, and he's like, oh, my God, this stuff doesn't work at all, <laughs> right? The only reason it works is because you experience side effects, right? So you, because you're experiencing a side effect, you assume the thing is working and it, it's still to this day, it's like, and you'll, you can look online, people sort of like, I'm sure there's industry published literature saying that his analysis was incorrect or anything like that. But, you know, it should have fundamentally changed the entire sector altogether, but we have, you know, $14 billion a year made it on SSRIs. We have $18 billion a year on, on antipsychotic medication. And so these industries have fundamentally functionally shifted every, the way that we think about psychology altogether. This is all chemical imbalance and the way that they have been able to sort of work so that now you can functionally change a lot of this stuff that you can now put kids on them. So we've, we've medicalized childhood, right? We medicalized boys. We medicalized yes. their inability to sit in a classroom. Most of yes. the, most of the kids that I was teaching in inner city schools were being dropped off. at between seven and 8 AM and they were getting picked up at 6 PM at night. And they were living their lives inside of a school. And these were schools that were really trying. I mean, they they had after-school programs. And not all of it was dedicated to STEM. There was a lot of stuff. They were getting the kids outside no matter what day of the Even if it was, like, lightly raining out, these kids were going outside as much as you possibly could. But these kids were spending that much time away from family, you know, and spending functionally most of their life, you know, administered by these, by these schools. And so this was like, you can't operate this way. You can't think this way. You can't, you know, you can't educate this way. 
no, this is not the environment for a child at all. And I think, you know, ADHD increased, right? The rate of diagnosis of ADHD increased 41% between 2003 and 2012. And I think that when you look at it, and I, I have all of these statistics over here, but when you look at this, I think what you see is, especially with the medicalization of children, like children were not supposed to sit in a desk for hours at a time, being a poet one minute and a mathematician the next. I, I, that is not something that is part of that childhood experience. And again, you've cleaved them. What you said really struck me that you've cleaved them from culture, from adult, from, from that space, you've isolated them, you've siloed them in this, in this strange situation and taken away a lot of the physical education that at least used to be somewhat a part of it. And of course, these kids are not able to pay attention and are hyper. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I've loved as a tangent is Richard Reeves' book of of boys and men that looks at the education gap that is happening for boys just in the last 10 to 15 years as boys really start to fall behind in school. And I think that this is one part of that of that problem. Yeah. Like, especially during COVID, the, the notion that uh, children were falling behind was so abhorrent to me. Falling behind what? <laughs> Like, what you know i mean we, yeah. we keep on changing this stuff to like you know it um you know it, and we, you know you talk about it within the health community the 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 way that a lot of the educational system like they're looking at grip strength in the 80s and grip strength now and it's it's just precipitously it's just gone down you know oh, yeah. uh, kids can't yeah. hang on monkey bars anymore and all of this stuff and so what do the what do they do do they spend more time outside no they just lowered the threshold for what they consider to be strong grip strength <laughs> you know? so it's just like we'll just you change know. that we'll just change yeah. that we'll just change it playing, to a fence. yeah we're yeah, totally. And, you know, and I think it's just like there, because you, you know, people, people will ask me like, you know, how do you read two or three books a week? How do you spend that much time consuming information? How do you remember things? And I said, like, I don't have a theory behind it. I don't like talk about it. I associate the stuff that I do with an emotional experience. So when I remember things, it's because I'm studying something that has an emotional resonance with me. And so because it has an emotional resonance, my, my brain naturally adheres to it, creates connections. When you are learning stuff that is intrinsically in, uh, invaluable to you, then you remember when you like, I mean, do you ask somebody who is obsessed with, uh, say, soccer or football, like the stats and the scores on any number of different teams, like the depth of knowledge is absolutely insane because they want to know. There's no distinction between those two. But the way our educational system works is says, listen, we're going to teach you this thing. It has no value to you right now, but it'll have value to you in the future. And there's just, there's, there's no way to think that way for a kid. And so, you know, you're constantly inundated with this thing that's so abstract. The kids, the reason why the kids loved our program was because it wasn't abstracted. We weren't showing them pictures of carrots. They were holding carrots in their hands, you know, they were smelling carrots. I mean, we had kids who touching carrots. Yeah. We had kids who only ate white foods who like suddenly tried strawberries. I mean, we were working with kids of 40% of the kids were on the autistic spectrum. They have any number of different sense and tactile issues and stuff like that. And you cannot bypass that by showing them a picture of something on a screen, you know? Um, it has to have so, resonance. Yeah. And so like, you know, it just, it, it drives me batty. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> that is the me- medicalization of the human experience of this not of our desire for purpose and importance and i think i think that this plays into a lot of a lot of the diagnoses in adulthood too right like when we are separate from any sort of purpose or feeling like our work is valuable. And that includes being a child, right? And with a a worksheet on the seasons. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Really stuck on that one. Um, With a worksheet on the seasons. Well, what is this purpose? And this isn't fulfilling. Like I am not a member of my community right now. I am not, you know, out exploring and engaging with my curiosity. In fact, maybe my curiosity is punishable or frowned upon within the system that I'm in. I am cleaved from that. And then you look at adults sitting in a, in a cubicle under fluorescent lights with no window, not dissimilar to the spaces that they went to school in as children and feeling that the, I don't know, whatever it is that they're doing isn't giving purpose or connection or is part of the community or is rooted in anything of that human experience. And then their reaction to that is, I I feel sad. I feel disconnected. I feel depressed. I feel, I feel anxious. I feel all of these different things. Yeah. And, And the hard part about it for me is that the internalization that there's something wrong with you, right? And that's, that's where a diagnosis comes in. I think for a lot of people who do feel disconnected with, you know, the, the nature and the reality of the world that they're growing up in, who are traumatized by it, right? Uh, I really believe that there's, there are whole generations of young artists out there who, who don't get a chance to explore their world in a, in a way, uh, that is conducive to an experience because we're not all the same learners, we're, uh, but we have one track in the way that we think about even just art, you know? There, there are so many different aspects of that, that then says that there's something fundamentally wrong with you, right? You know, when you gain weight in a obesogenic environment, well, why can't you exercise enough, right? Well, it turns out Coca-Cola and Pepsi were paying the, you know, International Lifestyles, it's Life Sciences Institute to publish enormous amounts of research into the calories in versus calories out sort of like hypothesis saying you are lazy right? Like you should, or you should consume less in the most obesogenic environment ever created on this planet, you know? It just and came like, out that they were right. also helping fund some of these ventures, yeah. that the A&D was helping fund some of yeah. them. You want to hear an insanity, an absolute insanity? 80% of higher functioning animals in zoos are on antidepressants. Like, what the fuck are we doing? Wow. <laughs> like, wow. We, and I, they don't even work. Why are we giving it to them? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I, I mean, it lines, wow, lines somebody's pockets. Jesus. Yeah. I don't even know. Right? But are we like, just, are we just humans in zoos? I can't yeah. other than to yeah. say that we are just, we are just humans in human zoos experiencing the same, the same disconnection from our nature that those animals are experiencing and reacting to it. And then being told that we're broken and that this is an issue with our, our brain chemistry, which again, you know, I mean, nature just published an entire article that was like the serotonin 
serotonin model of depression is not there. Mm. We can't find it. Right. Um, yeah. and, and there, there are no biological tests for any, any mental diseases, um, or no. maybe Huntington's or something like brain disorders, but not depression or like that. We have no functionally like uh, objective test for any of that, any of this stuff. This is all yeah. just a one big theory. Yeah. Um, all of it. And they talked about that. I mean, there's, you know, here's, here's the guy that was in this DSM task, DSM three task force. What happened is that we made estimates of the prevalence of mental disorders totally descriptively without considering that many of these conditions might might be normal reactions, which are not really disorders. That's the problem because we were not looking at the context in which those conditions developed. Robert Spitzer. Yeah. And he look, says I it mean, right there. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and I, I do think it was DSM five that actually uh, started to introduce a lot of the way that we sort of medicalize childhood experience. Uh, so ADHD and what do they call it? Opposition defiance disorder, ODD, you know, opposite. So like, all right. So if, if you have, if you studied anything about hunter-gatherer societies, the way that we've spent 99% of our, 99.9% of our existence is, you understand that, that authority is always questioned, ridiculed, or mocked. Uh, because they functionally understand that as soon as somebody stands up and says, I know better than the rest, the other person is going to like wreck that society. And so if a hunter comes home and he kills, he kills an animal, they're like, my God, it wasn't even worth like walking away from the fire. Look, there's no meat on this, no fat on this animal. What are you doing? You know, they, they trade arrows so that if the hunter goes and he kills the animal, was it the hunter or the arrow that was given to him? There's all these different methodologies, uh, to ensure that you don't develop an ego that would in essence say like you, as soon as that ego is developed, then you start to take more wives, you start to take more of your own. And so they set up sort of cultural constructs to ridicule people so that they never feel like they're better than anything else. And so, you know, what we do is we send kids into these environments and we say, listen, you see that stranger up there? He's your boss. He's the authority figure. He knows more than you, right? And it's all throughout society, right? Whether it's Elon Musk or Bill Gates or any number of different these different people. So these people are authorities. They are success in one measurement, one measurement. They're super fucking rich, right? And so therefore they're, they're allowed to tell us everything that we need to know. And you, if you want to study the absurdities of say Gates, there's a, a wonderful book that came out years ago. It's called no such thing as a free gift and just watch the way this man operates, especially in vaccines and all of this other stuff. The man is just, a, he's a joke. He's a joke of an individual. Uh, I want to tangent a little bit in this cause I want to tell a story about the sort of functional nature of the way that we like we, I, I have to live in these assholes worlds on a regular basis. So Rockefeller at, uh, one of the richest men in the world at the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century, total robber baron, like just total dominance over, you know, everything, so much wealth that we're still dealing with this fucker and all of his children today. Sorry, I'm cursing. You got me. <laughs> You're you got fine. Me You're up. fine. You're <laughs> fine. <laughs> so, uh, he owned a mine in Colorado and it, it was a company town. And so if you don't know what a company town is, uh, a company town is centered around this idea that like you, you these workers come in, they have to pay rent. Uh, the, the town is owned by the company. So you pay rent, you pay for all of your, all of your supplies, all of the supplies that you're supposed to be using to mine their shit for them and all of your food. And so you end up in debt. 
we saw this in Grapes of Wrath with a lot of the agricultural communities in California. But um, you see this sort of played out and almost to the point where in certain mining towns, if you were the wife of the man who was in debt, you also had to give yourself over to uh, the manage the management. So this is, you know, the total ownership, like with the consent in many ways of the government, the state's governments at the time. Uh, and so if you protested, if you showed up and you know, refused to work, or if you actually got violent, the U S militia would, would show up. And this actually happened in Colorado, uh, Rockefeller, brought in uh, the U.S. military to what what ended up happening was Eugene V. Debs, who was a socialist at the time, I think set up these camps for people to live so that they could protest without actually being in the spaces that were owned by this company town. Uh, and so the U.S. militia showed up and they killed like 51 people, women, children. They just indiscriminately machine gunned these tents, uh, tents. And so up until this point, the newspapers at the time were always pro-business. They were always pro the mining companies uh, because they lived in these large cities and everything was so dependent upon the energy that was brought in that any any disruption in that was abhorrent to the cities. And so the city newspapers would always vilify any workers' protests or anything like that. Uh, but this one was horrible. And, you know, seeing women and children dead and all of this other stuff. And so Rockefeller was like, oh, shit, I actually got into trouble. And in some ways, his reputation up until this point uh, was considered in many ways. Like, uh, there were so many, like, uh, drawings of him as sort of an octopus, like, controlling. And his tentacles were all over the world. And he had too much power. And so he hired a guy by the name of, like, Amos Ames. Uh, who was the sort of first guy to kind of create a PR campaign? Um, the fixer, the fixer, and he was a fixer. Like a- yeah. And so they brought this guy in and he was going to change the whole sort of landscape of the way that people thought about Rockefeller. Uh, and so Rockefeller's son went out to Colorado. They show him with a pick in his hand and he's like a man's man, like man, you know, like whatever. It's a rehabbing of the entire image. Rockefeller starts his foundation. He starts to uh, overhaul school education. He starts to do all of this stuff. He becomes a philanthropic institution that is now considered one of the world's like best. Um, sort of psychic psychiatry in there. Um, you can oh, unpack yeah. some of what he did for speaking of psychiatry. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. And it was a, so much of it was about like, um, uh, spreading a very specific form of, you know, uh, robber baron capitalism to the rest of the world. Uh, he was going to civilize the, the planet. So the, the first sort of PR campaign became that we, we have completely functionally rehabbed the man's image. Bill Moyers did a thing called the image makers. If you want to watch it, it's brilliant. I don't think it's longer than an hour. You can dive into it and see the sort of functional change in that. So why does that matter? Right? So you have the Carnegie endowment, you have Carnegie, you have Rockefeller, every single one of them got into this and they became these philanthropic institutions. Flash forward uh, to the early 2000s, you have Gates who has over uh, all of the 80s and 90s just been a dick just to everyone. Right. And so there's an antitrust case that goes up against him. Uh, I think it's simultaneously happening in Britain and it's also happening in the United States. And he's for the first time in his life, he's actually scared of losing his company. He thinks his company is going to get broken up. And you can see actually the fear in his eyes when you watch some of the trials uh, that were happening at the time. The man is a completely different man than he is today. And so shortly afterwards, he wants to do exactly the same thing. He follows the Rockefeller Foundation. He rehabs his image. 
what does he do? He says, I'm going to give away 95% of my fortune. I'm going to set up a foundation. I'm going to cure the world. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. He what, has he given away 95% of his fortune? Cause the last time I checked, I think the guy was worth what? 200 billion dollars. Buffett gets on board with it. Every single one of these guys, they have completely rehabbed their image. They're now philanthropic institutions that in essence sort of govern, you know, and what they can do with a lot of this stuff and what the Clinton foundation was able to do was they leverage this idea of child welfare and maternal health and any number of different things to be able to bring themselves into any government on this planet and then, you know, get access to mineral and mining rights, uh, to functionally change the, you know, like to, to utilize this wealth and power on the philanthropic front to be able to, to create enormous wealth for themselves. And so, and you can see, you can see that, you know, and so, so the funny story, uh, part of it was that, um, Zuckerberg, who's like, I think you fucking hated by everyone. He tried to do exactly the same thing. I don't know if he's rehabable. (laughs) So he decided. Yeah. So he decided to do the same thing. Zuckerberg Foundation. He gives a hundred million dollars to Newark, and nobody fucking cares. And he loses his mind. He throws this huge tantrum. He's like, "Why? You know, why can't I do the same thing?" You're like, "Because nobody likes you, dude. Nobody Um, likes you." Yeah. So like, you have to look at it from the lens of these, like the way these people operate, you know, but anyway, so, uh, it's small tangent, but I get like, I, you know, I was good. <laughs> it's an important tangent because I think, you know, we've built this picture, right? And at the beginning, we started this talking about how that elite class operates, how they're going to get in their penis rockets and go to Mars and, and just leave all of us here and how, and so it's important to understand how they are viewed in society and how that, that view is shaped. And so I don't, I actually don't even think it's tangential. I think that it goes into understanding how we, I mean, in in many ways, how we create gods in our society and how they operate within that space and within this deep, deep divide that exists between, between us and them. Yeah. So I want to leave you with a, a story that's like, I mean, just, or we could just continue. I just talk about this forever, but I, I want to talk about effective altruism. I don't know if you've been following any of this. So this is the new scandal. Yeah. Go, go into it. Go into it. All I right. have a little bit of background. Okay. So for about a year and a half, I've been looking into this group because there's sort of a weird aspect of this that is uh, sort of followed in the tech community of these people who are really antagonistic to the worldview that the tech community is sort of providing us with. And they have been sort of screaming from the rooftops about a lot of the stuff that's sort of happening within the tech industry in terms of this philosophical uh, perspective that has kind of taken over huge aspects of it. They have sort of this worldview that was starting to govern the way that they were deploying capital. And so if you look back into the origin of it, it was sort of somebody who, while at college at Oxford University, had been studying Peter Singer's work. Uh, Peter Singer is a guy, in again, in the fucking 70s, who wrote a book called Animal Liberation. He is... he's. 
uh, an ethical vegan. And he's really kind of like uh, one of the initial proponents of, of veganism that got a sort of a, a world audience in many different ways. So you you have the sort of birth of veganism in, in the sort of 40s and 50s that is sort of marginalized. Um, nobody really knows what to do with it. Peter Singer comes out. And Peter Singer is a really problematic character. He's not like we can kind of go into some of the aspects of who he is as a person, but he, he has never been sort of vilified in the way that he should be, because I think he's, because he's considered analytical and divergent thinker, he's allowed to say a lot of really weird and fucking racist shit that he kind of gets away with. Uh, before, for whatever reason, there is this sort of, uh, argument that's sort of put forth in one of his original papers in the seventies that says something is sort of a thought experiment. Uh, you get dressed up, you're getting ready to go to work one day and you're walking past a pond and there's a child that's drowning in the pond. And so should you ruin your clothing and go to the job interview and get the job or should you go and save the child? And the way that I always remembered it was the, I thought the way he said it was you go get the job, you make a ton of money and you give that money away to save more children. But turns out it's not exactly the same. You go, you save the child. So it becomes this sort of like philosophical treatise that says, well, if there is a child anywhere in the world that you can save, you should be able, you should be using your wealth and privilege to go and save that. And so it comes off as sort of an origin story that sounds really nice, right? Like you should be, right? You should maybe give as a tithe, if you are making $70,000 a year, a certain percentage of your money to help people who are less fortunate. And so that's the beginning of the sort of basic, uh, fundamental sort of philosophical premise. And William McCaskill becomes sort of the, uh, sort of galvanizing, entity behind this. And he finds a number of different people kind of associated with, he starts to build this movement at Oxford. He's giving away like 70% of everything that he makes. So he's kind of like living really like, you know, you just every, as much money as they possibly can. So the movement eventually sort of reaches this weird point where they're like, all right, well, what if we made a ton of money? <laughs> right? Like what if we made shit ton of money? What if we worked for the oil industry or the pharmaceutical industry? What if we worked for the tech industry and we made a ton of money that we could give more and more money away. And so it slowly starts to get taken over and Will's kind of like playing along with it. Uh, there's a number, uh, Toby Ord, a number of different people kind of get associated with this, uh, who start to build this movement and, and, uh, the movement really starts to grow. It's mostly like overeducated, uh, like white, like kids who kind of take over. So I want to flash forward a little bit. So, uh, by the time that they start to deploy capital in a way that is really relevant, uh, they have, and I think at the height of this, it was somewhere around $40 billion under deployment. And this is coming from two main sources, Sam Bankman fried over at FTX and Dustin Moskowitz and Kari Tuna, uh, who were Facebook founders who are worth billions as well. And both of them consider themselves ethical vegans. Uh, the Moskowitzes are huge as ethical vegans. They deploy a ton of capital, uh, to a number of different causes. The ones that we actually are spending a lot of time actually arguing against a lot They're They were the ones who gave a ton of money to the guardian millions of dollars, uh, to primarily write about animal agriculture, uh, through it their shows. open philanthropy. Yeah. So their open philanthropy project was funded by the Moskowitzes, uh, Sam Bankman free 
Reid was giving enormous amounts of money away to vegan causes, media organizations, to the Good Food Institute, which is an offshoot of PETA. Um, one of the guys who had worked at PETA for close to 14 years was one of the big proponents of plant-based meat. They gave millions of dollars to the creation of that turned him into a quote-unquote scientist. He never studied science. He's just always been an, an animal activist. And so deployment enormous amounts of capital towards and all of this. And so Sam, so Sam is like a crypto billionaire. And one of the things that ends up happening with these guys is they say uh, a lot of the, the stuff that the tech industry uh, says now, they say, listen, we need to hold on to this capital because we can deploy it better than everybody else. We're going to use all of our institutional knowledge and all of our statistics in order to give away to philanthropic causes that actually matter to us. Uh, and so we don't have to pay taxes anymore. So Sam moves down to Jamaica and he sets up his compound and he's saying he's deploying all of this money. We're, we're, I mean, we're talking like close to a hundred million dollars, I think. A lot of um, money. An enormous amount of money. Like, uh, there was, there was money given to Vox Media, which does their Future Perfect series, which is all about veganism. Ezra Klein, who is the editor in chief over at Vox Media. Everybody who works at Vox Media is an, uh, an ethical vegan. They've all come up through, uh, like, say, Mercy for Animals or any number of different causes. Uh, there are, who else are they giving it to? They were supposed to give $7 million, $7.5 million to our world and data, which has never had anything good to say about animal agriculture ever. They said that they gave it back. I don't know if they've given money before. Gates Foundation obviously funds our world and data. Uh, they're heavily invested in plant-based beets. And so what you have, what, what you functionally had is like this complete like corporate takeover of, of a lot of media to push the specific agenda that was primarily moved uh, to move us away from animal agriculture. And a lot of it was deployed darkly. Like some, sometimes it was a humble brag. Sometimes it was, you know, you wouldn't see um, eventually the Guardian, I think, was shamed into actually showing on there which articles were directly funded by the Open Philanthropy Project. But prior to that, I don't think they were showing that at all. So it just seemed like uh, valuable reporting that was coming out of that. And so you just kind of like, you look at all of this stuff and you're like, so these, these are the organizations and it's enormous amounts of money being deployed all over the planet to push people towards, um, to the removal of animal agriculture. And so since, so Sam is, it's a total scam. He was leveraging money that he said that he was buying for crypto for people on his exchange to take all of this money to deploy it in any myriad different ways that he wanted to. He is worth nothing now, but he's still being Zero. bailed out by somebody. $32 billion gone in... Yeah. I think his bail was, it was, it was insane. I don't want to misspeak. I feel like it was 250 million, but that feels absurd. Um, I think it was. Yeah. I it think was it was 250 million. million. But he did make bail because of some uh, a number of different things associated with it. Um, he is staying at his parents' four billion dollar estate uh, near Stanford Stanford University, and he'll do that through the entire trial. He wanted extradition to the United States because he didn't like his jail in Jamaica, uh, and he could advocate for vegan meals while he was in prison while he was here. So, <laughs> oh, wow, I didn't I didn't know my eyes rolled that far into the back of my head. I, <laughs> I, I had missed that detail. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Mm. And and when you look at the, the, the way that, uh, the way that these guys have operated for a long time. So uh, eventually effective altruism moved into this thing called long-termism and it's a mathematical calculation that, that we, that I talked about a little bit before. It was like, what is the value of a human today versus a value of the human in the future? Uh, and so for them, it's about expanding the light of consciousness to the rest of the universe. And so the deployment of capital now doesn't matter about making this world better. It's about creating this sort of this future techno utopians, you know, society. And so they were deploying in many different ways that are, that don't make that much sense anymore. And it's, it's like any number of sort of schizophrenic institutions. They're like equally against AI, but also hoping that it'll happen in the way that they describe their, you know, it, it, any number of different things. But uh, I do think we'll, what we'll find out over the next, you know, through this trial and everything like that was, uh, how much money was actually being deployed and what they were doing to, in essence, sort of like, you know, shame people into sort of moving away from animal agriculture altogether. But they've been just so, just so dominant for so long. I think it's going to be, it's going to be like one of those zombie, zombie, uh, studies that just never really goes away, like livestock's long shadow or something yeah. like oh, that. Yeah. You know? yeah. That has permeated the, the cultural conversation around this yeah. in a way that, and, in a way that I actually find fascinating, I relate it to playing a game of telephone and Livestock's Long Shadow being one example where, you know, each reporter gets an assignment or they come up with a piece that they want to do. And instead of examining where their views came from, right, how their how their view of animal agriculture and of food has been shaped, they just parrot this view that has been become the, the quorum, the consensus within that yeah. community. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, a lot of this interview has spoken to how that quorum, how that consensus of our viewpoints gets cemented throughout time. And that it's, it's no wonder that, that this is the case in all of these different spaces because it's, it's kind of in many ways been constructed in that way and, and made in that way. And then on, on the other side of it, you have, the rise of this billionaire class and, and this idea of long-termism, which I was not familiar with. And I'm, I'm grateful to have that one in my lexicon, this idea of long-termism and this techno utopia that exists in some future way and is clean and is death free, especially for those that are inhabiting it. And the way that all of those views have been shaped, this sort of bifurcation in society where you have this elite class and viewpoint and this other class and the way that they link together through how things are, are being shaped and how things have been shaped over the last 100 years. I mean, this isn't just now. This is a cathexis of everything that has happened up until this point. Yeah. I mean, look at the, the people advising Eric Adams are effective altruists. I mean, I've had conversations with them. Uh, these are people who are taking over governments, uh, who are, are legislating or, or pushing any number of different buttons to, to promote this worldview. And, you know, I think that the problem with it is that like, you know, we are, we're functionally distracted. There's just two, we're, we're going from like, you know, it's like a, you, this, the sun people of the Kalahari will kind of talk about like, you know, a thousand, thousand year floods or, you know, some traumatic event that kind of happened, like, you know, and, and they, they go over the courses of hundreds of years. They have, you know, maybe a deluge story or something like that. We go from 
goddamn crisis to crisis every day. You know, it's so hard to like just pull yourself out of it and say, you know, any number of different things that are going on, like what matters, right? Yeah, and I, I do think that that is somewhat difficult. But like you said, in regards to a child learning about something, there has to be a delineation that not all things can matter to all people. I don't mean to say this, I don't know, mm-hmm. but yeah. But that it has to be resonance and there has to be some resonance for you. And I think that this, this striving to have all the knowledge of all the crises, all the things that matter going on, it's information overload for a a human operating system that was never meant to consume this volume of information. And I think we are, we are most effective and most purpose-driven, most joyful, most resonant when we engage with those things that matter to us, right? Like the animal agriculture conversation, the meat conversation, that's very resonant for me. There are any number of issues that other people might find resonance with. And I think it's important that, you know, we're working as an entire culture, that there's, there's pieces of this that are woven together. Yeah. I have found within this conversation about globalization, the billionaire class, uh, and any number of different things associated with that, which may seem like really far-flung, you know, uh, issues that you have absolutely no direct control over or anything like that. I don't think we can, we can say that we, we, I, I just, I'm, I'm hoping people understand that there are certain elements of the way that they operate that has a direct effect on your life. And so if the deployment of capital, uh, your taxpayer dollars don't go to helping farmers it locally or within a community, or if billionaires start to move in, in the way that's happening outside of New York city in the Hudson Valley brings up farming properties at a time when the department of agriculture is actually trying to move as much agriculture back up to the Northeast as possible because of all the droughts that are happening in the Southwest. So we, we see it, we're, we're starting to see that there are, a number of different ways that these guys who are sort of, you know, playing these games with people's lives are actually having a direct effect and educating your children is, is in essence, sort of one of those things. You have to understand that these guys have leveraged their power and their, their ability through PR campaigns and the way that they give to institutions like the media so that, you know, the Washington post is owned by Jeff Bezos. Um, you know, MSNBC, you know, like that's a, that's a Gates, you know, organization, (laughs) like, you know, the guardian, every single one of these institutions has been sort of semi co-opted by these guys who actually functionally believe that they're better than us, you know, dumpy old Bill Gates, <laughs> like you know. I mean, I dumpy old like, Elon. They're both they're both pretty dumpy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just have like you know, and it's never for you to like to say that it's your responsibility to know all of this stuff. I just want people to have pause so they understand that there is enormous amount of pressure on, you know, you're going to get it from your school. That's going to tell you that you're, you're not doing enough for your children. Tell them to fuck off. You know, I mean, that's the hardest part, but like, you're like racing to nowhere, you know? And you know, when, when I get like, but my kids, when I get like the, uh, oh, you know, you're sort of falling a little bit behind. I'm like, so it's, what is, that's your problem. <laughs> you <know? I> don't <laughs> <care>. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. but I have had pressure from in any number of different uh, institutions over the years to put my kids on some sort of medication. You know, it's always been no. You know, and the, you're going to get it, and to understand that 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 all of that stuff is going to have enormous effect on their development, uh, their ability to know themselves, right? Because you're, what you're doing is narcotizing their their ability to know what how to function in the world. When something, when you go out and you say something horrible to somebody, and they look at you back in the face with that face that says, "Oh my God, I can't believe you said that," and you feel nothing, you've learned nothing from that experience, you know. So, and, and that is a hard thing to understand that like the way that they've sort of taken all of that stuff out of your world so that you, in essence, are, you're underdeveloped in many different ways, you know, and, you know, like I have a friend of mine who's, um, uh, he's, he's one of my best friends. We were, we were taking his kid out. His kid is Russian Jewish and he is, uh, uh, Bangladeshi. And he's, it gets this beautiful skin tone. He's like, it's this really like caramel colored, beautiful child. And he was putting on like SPF 50 as we were hiking in the forest. And I was like, come on, <laughs> put a hat on him. Like, you know, SPF 50, like as if sunlight was like, gonna just wipe this kid off the planet. <laughs> Yeah. Require the sun to make something. It's not just, yeah. it's not, that's, I know. it has a purpose. So funny. So funny. Um, where do you want to go? Are we, uh, are we winding down? I, I mean, I'm, I'm good for whatever I'm, I'm along for the ride. You know, I think yeah. that there's a desire to kind of, weave it together, right. To pull, to pull it all back into the space, which I think we've kind of done towards the end here, because I do think that that, that viewpoint is so important. And I've just gotten an education that I've, what I feel under red, which is a good, it's a good feeling. It's good. It's good for me to feel a little under red. Yeah. Um, Oh no, let me, let me like, let me look at this. We didn't even talk about your background, but that, that's always my, um, that's always my thing. My husband is like, you never talk to people about what they do. And I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, sometimes uh, I, I think with, um, sorry to go back. I'm, I'm talking about Brett too much. Hey Brett, hope you're listening. Um, but <laughs> I think for him, his origin story was so interesting because I hadn't known that about him before. I'd been on his podcast and I'm going to have him on for sustainable dish, but it, the, the level to which his whole system was completely compromised and the way he brought himself back from that was, was pretty, just the money that would be spent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. I mean, millions of dollars just on his, just on, uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, hmm. but the oh, drug we didn't even talk that, about butchery. <laughs> about butchery. I know that, well, that was that was like that was my big thing was yeah. this question of and now I think that question is even more potent for me. So as butchers, right, we get this really unique opportunity to see an animal's life from the inside out. We get to see those practices made carcass composition and. I'm even more curious now having talked to you, like how you take, how you take that really, that experience in such a formative years too. I think you were 14 when you started butchering, right? You take that experience and you spiral out and around to how this, this piece of meat 
becomes a part of culture and informs culture and all the ties to it. That's such a journey to make. And it's not linear. And it it, it really interests me if that, if that makes sense, because all of a sudden you go from looking at meat to teasing out all these different threads of the relationship that meat has to our culture. And within that space, unpacking so much of how culture has been created. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, uh, you know, my father, my father got me the job. Uh, it was the first job I ever had. I didn't know how to quit a job. So I ended up joining the military and then like had to leave, <laughs> you know? So at, at 14 to 18, I was, I was working, uh, with these guys who were old school Irish butchers. Uh, God, they drank. It was like unbelievable, but they had owned this butcher store. They were, it was part of a family for a very long time. And it was just like completely just wiped out by supermarkets and big box stores and all this other stuff. I had never seen anything like it. You know, I worked with these guys over the course of like, like I said, four years and I didn't know how much it would actually affect my worldview at all. I didn't know you, you deliver to people who spent their lives, you know, in, in apartments you deliver to, uh, you walked into people's houses. A lot of people were shut-ins. A lot of people were in their eighties. Uh, they couldn't grocery shop anymore. And, you know, you'd send all of your stuff out and you'd meet people come in. You'd, uh, the fire department would come in and spend hundreds of dollars on, on meat. Uh, you would get like, you know, Russian guys pay with food stamps and show up in a, brand new BMW. Like you use <laughs> completely like weird uh-huh. worldview. Uh, and then you're also in like 74th street and Roosevelt, which is like, there's 200 at the time, I think it was like 250,000, um, uh, people from the Indian subcontinent would come into this one, like three block radius that for shopping every single weekend. And there was Everything was like Indian, Indian owned businesses, except for us and like a Payless shoe, shoe store. That was the only thing that was left. Uh, and so it was just a really interesting experience. So you couple that with, you know, my mom, who was a ballet dancer, who never really had like a great relationship with food. I never got into cooking until later on, like much, much later, you know, with, Amy, she was like, one of us is going to have to learn how to cook. And she was like, <laughs> you. Um, and so I went into it kicking and screaming and then studied with like some of the like most wonderful chefs in the world. Uh, and then ended up with these Irish butchers in London working for a guy by the name of Jack O'Shea, who was like, I don't know what he was. He was like a rock star butcher who used to work at Selfridges. So he would, they had this huge counter at Selfridges and Saudi billionaires would come in and they would buy like the entire counter of meat and all this other stuff that, so he was sort of this huge rock star butcher who, um, had just opened up a place in this small, like enclave in London. And I went to go apprentice with his guys. These were totally old school, like Irish guys. The, the one guy, the, the main guy who I, God, I love this guy to death. He was like, Oh man. He was like, I, he was like, yeah, you know, I'm an alcoholic, so I don't drink anymore or anything like that. But man, those years like where I was just like drinking all the time, he would talk about him fondly. And then I've been with him for like eight months. And he's like, he's like, Hey, you want to go out for a beer? And I'm like, what? <laughs> he's like, um, uh, uh, no, cause you're an alcoholic. And he's like, yeah, no, 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 no. I don't drink spirits anymore, but I can drink beer all day. I drink beer all the I time. Was coming. <laughs> I'm a fucking Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> 
whiskey. Um, I don't drink whiskey. Yeah, yeah. I just don't drink whiskey. But they were just really good. Like, um, so his his brother in law was he worked there. He these guys all they wanted to do was get on the property ladder. They had bought council estates, which are like um, these sort of low income apartments that used to be used for kind of welfare, but they could buy into them. He wanted to leave something for his next generation of kids. Uh, he wanted to kind of create wealth. He like worked. At, these guys worked so hard, and the way that they broke down animals was so completely different than the American style. Uh, just very, very different. Um, so we cut. You, yeah, 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 yeah. We cut very European. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, I mean, they were just really like, you know, just happy, happy to serve people. And, you know, we had vegan protesters. They would come in every time Jack O'Shea was in town, they would like protest. And, uh, the butcher's son would go out and ask the girls out for dates. And, you know, they didn't really understand it, but it was really great. I like being 38 and seeing it from the inside, just the level to which these guys just weren't being paid. Jack had, uh, Jack had a, he had a restaurant in Belgium that ended up going under Jack. He got heavily involved in drugs and I think he kind of sort of fell off the radar. But when we were filming sacred cow, I met, uh, the butcher who is part of the initial part of the film. He has a two Michelin star restaurant in Belgium. He has another restaurant that it kind of took over Jack O'Shea's restaurant, uh, in Belgium. Uh, so it was a weird confluence of times in my life because these guys all kind of knew each other and, you know, Dieren Dank is the, is the butcher who is just such a great guy, like just so warm hearted and just willing to teach and it, the best butcher shop I've ever seen in my life. Like uh, by far just used every part of the animal he get his hands on. I mean, I'm biased. I know, um, I know. <laughs> I think Western daughters is the best. Yeah. <laughs> I got to come over. I got to come over and hang out. Yeah. I mean, if you're ever in Denver, let us know. Mm, yeah, um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. 10 years, 10 years old this month. Oh, cool. Has been, that we've been using every last part, but there is something, there's something really magical about butchery for me in that you have an opportunity to see how everything is connected. And I mean, in a really, in a really, at a really granular level to see the fascia that, that winds through our whole body that is in, you can't tease it out from one another, right? It's all, it's all one piece of fascia as you pull off a short rib plate or as you peel off a top round and, and it's all connected and it creates this organism. And then you get to see the impacts that, that of farming and ranching practices. I mean, you know, I've been cutting grass-fed beef for the last decade, but when I learned I was doing corn-fed beef, but you get to see the season and you get to see the rotations and you get to see the different diets made manifest in in these muscles and in the color of fat and all of these different things. And I think one of the gifts of that is you begin to see just what a complex puzzle we are and just how much influence there is for every piece of our biology. And I think it's, it's easy to extrapolate that outwards and say that you can look at how complex the culture that makes up all of these systems just gives you a very different lens through which to view life and living. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. And look, I mean, I think even just, uh, you know, if you're, uh, 
the the level to which we actually don't have any understanding of the fascia uh, is now just starting to be sort of brought out um, in the fitness community. Like so much power comes from yes. that. like this sleeve that governs like, you know, how you feel and the way that you move. And, you know, James Oshman calls it the living matrix that, mm. that the, the collagen that makes up fascia, the living matrix. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a lot of rehab. Uh, a lot of people working in rehab are, are so heavily focused on that right now because we can see the degeneration of it, right? Um, we're seeing it in the human body as we go. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, some, like some part of me says we're, we're getting there, right? Like when I have these conversations, I'm like, we're getting there. And we're starting to figure it out. Like, you know, we're starting to realize that they're, you know, the, that the dung beetle is, is a keystone species. They're starting to realize that, that predator prey relationships actually functionally make nature and ecosystems healthier. Uh, we're starting to see like that we can create a world that like, we would want to live in. And there are all of these different like elements of that. And I'm just trying to like get all those people together. That's what our films are about, right? That's what death in the garden is about. It's like, is to understand that nature isn't something that we have to subjugate that, that we can't, you know, we have, we have such a need for domination in the way that we think about all of this stuff. And like, um, I was recently, uh, like, I don't know if you've ever been to, um, I always forget it's a the uh, the poulet rouge. Have you ever had a poulet rouge? There there are a number of different birds that are raised in France that are considered like national birds. Um, very very different from the American uh, chicken. Um, they they look like dinosaurs. Uh, and the leg is the predominant meat. the The breast uh, is actually relatively is really small, but the fat is just yellow. It's just a completely different experience to go and eat that. And you, what you're doing is actually eating a lot less protein. What you are eating is something that is so highly satisfying that you just don't like you're, you're satiated. Like you eat food and you're like, Oh my God, I'm satiated. Like, this is what it feels like. And you just realize like, we start moving back to this. Like we have one, I think we have one company that does all the genetics for, for, uh, for chickens, two, two companies, two companies. Aviagen and somewhere I have it in my notes. I talked about it with Frank Reese um, fairly recently, but it's two companies that own all of the genetics for chickens, and they're they're functionally they don't they, they don't work like the breeds don't work, and they've become they're so far down the line that they I mean they're they're sterile, and these genetics are essentially patented. It's a it's a fascinating process. I went I did a really deep dive into this with Jed Green. And Frank Reese, who's part of the Good Shepherd Poultry Conservancy. And it, it's a fascinating thing. But there is, I haven't had a poulet rouge, but we raise um, sometimes like really old line bard rock roosters yeah. Yeah. for, for yeah. eating. And it is, it has nothing to do with a chicken. Yeah. Have you, uh, do you know Mark Schatzker? I, I know of him. Yeah. He had a great book, uh, The Dorito Effect, where he, yeah. he talks about getting a barred rock. But yeah, he's he goes kind of really deeply into our our search and the need for nutrients and why we're uh, why we're ending up in this place where we're constantly eating but never satisfied. You know, yeah, yeah, he's a yeah. really interesting character. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know the, the sort of the butchery element of it is is I, I just think it's is really um, it, it should be part 
of uh, the curricula. I remember there was a story when I was over in the UK where there were, uh, there was a school, I think it was in Scotland, that was breaking down a, a whole pig. And the vegan community, nowhere near there, didn't even live near there, were uh, up in arms about it. So they ended up getting it shut down. But I think it's just so integral to, we should bring back like cooking classes. That's, you know, we should, we should stop divorcing people from every aspect of modern life and say that they're not ready yet because the, by the time they're 18, they're not going to be ready for a long time. Yeah. Home ec. Yeah. Home ec should come back. Yeah. Yeah. And could be even more enlightened and fun and involved. I mean, butchery and farming. And cause to me, that's yeah. part of home ec too, right? Like butchering and farming and cooking and, and all of these different pieces. They're vital. Yeah, we had a uh, the local community school here had a uh, twenty five million dollar grant for to build their ag program. I think there's just a lot happening in the Northeast to sort of build this stuff back. It is exciting. Um, you see the sort of simultaneous like local aspect of it that's trying to build a relationship with their farming communities, and then you see also the other side of it, which is the the, the large cities that are. A, a number of different people. I don't know if you're following a lot of the acreage that's being sold over to um, green energy. What do you call it? You know, um, solar panels. Solar? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I, I mean, see it. I see it take, in this area. Yeah. Fertile farmland. Like, I'll pay you $1,000 a year per acre. Uh, just convert this whole thing uh, so to plastic. Get energy. Plastic. <laughs> <laughs> just convert it to plastic. I mean, it's just all plastic. We didn't get in, and I, I think we could talk for hours, and we should probably wrap up. But the sunshine, the idea of a sunshine study, West Jackson has this idea of looking at the energy inputs for any given thing, right? And they yeah. did a, a whole sunshine farm over there at the Land Institute at one point. But this idea of a sunshine study being that if if I take a tractor and I look at the energy inputs that it took to mine the iron ore to make the steel, and I could extrapolate it really far out, right? I could go all the way to the gas that it takes as the steel lobbyist sits in DC traffic. Mm-hmm. And I could begin to look at all all of these inputs that go into making this thing that's going to make our techno utopia so perfect and ask whether or not it's really any better than this, this other thing. And there's a solar farm. I guess we call them a solar farm. That makes, that's, that's great. Um, (laughs) I thought about it in context. There's this solar farm on our drive into town. We're about an hour from the nearest town and it is, I mean, it is just, it, it is just an eyesore. It just feels like the most foreign and alien place I can imagine. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so weird to me. Um, so you talked about BlackRock before. So Larry Fink was the, uh, he was the, uh, he's the CEO of BlackRock, but he's, he's an interesting character because he, he lost most of his fortune. I don't remember what it was maybe, I think it was 87. Uh, it was one of the crashes. He lost most of his fortune. He ended up, uh, he wanted to create this supercomputer, right? Um, and he, he set it up somewhere in like Washington state. It's like their other export, the, the town's main export, I think is apples. Uh, and he set up this like supercomputer. He's like, I'm never going to not have enough information so that I can like govern everything, wave heights and air quality and weather systems and soil fertility. All this data is going to be aggregated in my supercomputer and I'm just going to make so much money. Well, this guy, he never saw 2008. 
never saw the mortgage crisis. He never saw it. The supercomputer is crunching numbers all day long, and he never saw it. Now, he's insulated because after the 2008 crash, they actually hired him to go and deal with all of the the buyback of all the stocks. So <laughs> no matter what happens, these guys are too big to fail. But it is interesting to me that like we we built this like worldview where like this thing, this this you know, digitize, like, you know, light emitting, you know, diodes and all of this stuff. We can somehow know the universe. And it is, it is, it is semi-religious. Like we can crunch all the numbers and we'll get it It all right. You know, we'll never lose our money again. And that's, that's Sam Bankman-Fried, right? He almost guaranteed that then the money would go up forever, that your money was safe within his financial institution. But if you understand anything about nature, you understand that there's always an upper limit, right? But yeah. no, there is no such thing as growth in perpetuity, at least, at least not as, as nature has ever conceived of it. And I, I don't know if we can break that ceiling and I have no idea why we would try. Yeah. And I think one of my greatest joys, one of their, one of our ranchers for Western daughters raises sheep and he has a contract with IBM to graze their solar farm. Mm. And so the sheep keep the grass mode underneath these solar panels. And it turned into an issue when the sheep started biting the, the cords that, (laughs) (laughs) that allowed everything through. And I, I think that's, I think in some ways there's an analogy there that you just can't, you can't anticipate, you can't anticipate it. You can't anticipate the unknown. You can't break yourself against it. And of course, I, I don't think that we can conquer, that we can conquer nature. I remember they were putting uh, masks on cattle to to mitigate uh, and measure the methane that was coming mm-hmm. out of them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. every farmer was like, do you, do you know how quickly these cows will get that caught in something. <laughs> Instantaneously. <laughs> Instantaneously. In like our running joke on the farm is like cows are why we can't have nice things. Like you set something up, yeah. you set something up and you're like, this is cow proof. And right. then sure enough, yeah. we got yeah, our milk right. cow. The first milk cow I ever had bought her an eye mask, you know, like for horses, but uh, horses, again, we, we talked horses are poorly made and maybe more civilized, um, and not, not in a good way in the way that we've been talking. Um, <laughs> we got her this fly mask and I mean, it lasted four hours and it was, oh, it was wow. broken and buried. <laughs> Stunned. <laughs> Can't do this. Yeah. But, you know, I do love, I, I, you know, I love it when you get the, because uh, Wired fucking loves this shit. Like all the technology magazines, they love this stuff. But they had, um, do, you, do you remember when they did virtual reality for dairy cattle so that they can get more cows so they can get more milk out of them? So they would put them in grass fields and stuff like that. I just love it. It's like just a, the total absurdity of modern civilization, you know? Total but, absurdity. Yeah. Yeah. And the disconnect of, oh, Grass helps them produce more milk. Being in a natural environment and seeing, you know, seeing a horizon or seeing, seeing things that make their organism what it is, uh, is conducive to increased yield and increased pleasure, maybe, uh, however we want to define or label that, increased uh, resonance with their environment. Yeah, we'll, we'll okay. get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. I'm pretty sure we could talk all day. Um, yep. We'll have all of this in the show notes along with a 
an excellent reading list that I am legitimately excited to dig into, though I have a feeling that you're holding out and I could get more um, reading recommendations out of you over time. But this is this is a really good reading list. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find you? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely recommend the Gatto stuff, to, uh, John Taylor Gatto. And he, uh, he's he got two books that are very short. Uh, and then uh, the other one that goes into it, uh, where you can find me, I'm I'm trying to be, uh, so I'm primarily on Primate Kitchen. I will post on there. Meg, who uh, used to uh, post for me, because it's the one thing I actually hate doing. Um, uh-huh. I'm, me too. I'm transferring because she's, uh, she's doing some amazing stuff and writing about Regen Ag and stuff like that. So, um, so I'm, I'm looking for something new. So if you know anybody, the uh, Supreme Kitchen is where I'm like posting all of the weird shit that is my worldview to kind of like get people surrounded around this idea that like, you know, like we're, we're measuring the wrong things or whatever, just absurdities and shit talk and all of that stuff. Uh, I am on Twitter for James, uh, James co photo. It's not my best self. Um, I find it very <laughs> difficult, uh, to, <laughs> um, <laughs> um it, it triggers me in, in, in many different ways. And some of it is my fault because I follow like a lot of the, uh, the people that I shouldn't follow. So I think in 2023, I'm just going to post as opposed to like shit post <laughs> engaging <going> to try. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can find me on that as well. Or just reach out. I don't know. Like DM me on, you know, on Instagram. If you find me, tell me I'm full of shit. just engage you more (laughs) okay okay i think these are great um i'm really grateful for you for coming on the podcast and for this crash course in history that uh, had escaped my knowledge and a lot of excitement around what there is to dive into following this interview cool yeah no thanks for having me on Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.